Good afternoon, and welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With the till three on this Wednesday, with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up, reactions, takeaways from the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And the last couple of nights for Major League Baseball. Plus, we've been breaking down a Power 5 conference every day this week. Today, it's time to look at the ACC. Who's going to win the conference? How will they stack up? I'll let you know. Plus, what are the biggest storylines in the ACC this year? How long is the leash on Clemson's quarterback? What's the future for Clemson and the ACC? We'll hear from Dabo. We'll hear from the ACC commissioner later on. We'll talk some golf with Jeremy Schilling an hour from now. Plenty of audio as we make our rounds in the SEC Media Day coming up later on this afternoon as well. And also, a real crisis in Major League Baseball that doesn't have to do with anything on the field that we have to sort out later today. Plenty to do throughout the afternoon as it's talking season, and we'll get to a lot of that talking throughout the afternoon from the SEC media days going on all week. Shane Beamer speaking yesterday. And now the ACC media days going on. Clemson had their own media day yesterday. Now the conference media day today. Dabo's going to be doing a lot of talking between yesterday and today and whenever or tomorrow, whenever he's actually speaking. But we got all sorts of uh, audio and things to touch on from those media days throughout the afternoon. With you till 3. As we uh, try to help you get over the hump and towards the weekend, you can always join the conversation throughout the afternoon. 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Radio Charleston, via email studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com, or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till 3, Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in the low country. we got a lot to talk about. The All-Star game was good. Not great, in my opinion, but we'll get to that at some point, I'm sure. Tons of audio, obviously. The SEC Media Days continue to rattle on. It's exciting. Yeah. Clark Lee's saying that, you know, his program's going to be number one for Vanderbilt, so good for him. But a lot going on. I'm glad to be here with you, kind sir. Yeah, good to have you. We'll get to that, Clark Lee, audio <laughs> later on. Because at a certain point, it's like, come on, right? I get being uh, uh, being optimistic. And if no one else is going to say it, you might as well. But uh, we gotta we got to take it easy with how far we go with some of these coaches, the coaching praise in the offseason. Got plenty to do throughout the afternoon. By the way, programming note, we don't really know when it may happen, but at a certain point, we're probably going to go off the air for a little while because of some work being done at the satellite. Now the show will continue to stream but over terrestrial radio, we may drop out for a few minutes at some point during this afternoon. Don't really know when it's going to be. Don't exactly know how long it's going to be. It's not going to be very long. But stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can always bring the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go, even if you're driving around in your car. Stream us through TuneIn Radio on our website, charlestonsportsradio.com. Or also, if you're at home through your smart speaker, you can play the uh, online stream. And also through our free app. Here's a good time to download it. Head over to the App Store and search ESPN Charleston in the App Store and download it for free, and you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. So those are your options to get the show today 
uninterrupted. And if you are one of many who listen on the terrestrial radio driving around or at your office or home, whatever it may be, of course, we appreciate you. But just a little warning, we may disappear for a few moments at some point this afternoon as they work on some things with our satellite. So we'll see when that happens, if it happens during this show. Who knows? But be forewarned and uh, download the app today so you can listen to the show today uninterrupted because we got so much to do. Let me start with the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And just what's been going on this week, All-Star Week for Major League Baseball. I have four or five main takeaways from this week in Major League Baseball that I think speak to Major League Baseball in the big picture. Let's look at last night's All-Star Game. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good production. The guys were mic'd up. You could hear a lot of the players throughout the game. I thought Fox did a good job of bringing you behind the scenes. I've always said when it comes to the Sunday night baseball games, and I know a lot of people I've talked to share the same opinion, mic up the players, but I don't need my broadcaster interviewing said players. Instead, mic them all up, have everybody on the field wear a microphone, for all I care, and have them all be live microphones. And so while you're getting the broadcast of the game, you're also hearing uh, what the guys are saying in the background. It could be a little tough for a broadcaster to navigate, right? Then you got to stop talking at a certain point or drop out, hear what they're going to say if it's of interest, especially when there's a mound visit or two players are talking with one another. But I don't need, last night when Nestor Cortez is pitching in the All-Star game, I don't need John Smoltz talking strategy with him. Let the guy pitch. Now, it's an All-Star game. It's an exhibition. It doesn't matter. But in the regular season, I don't like Sunday Night Baseball. You're interviewing Ronald Acuna during a game. It's like, hey, you know what? I know there's a lot of these games, but they matter in the standings. Stop interviewing one of the players. Let them play the game. But my main takeaway in all this is just the downtime. Baseball is the only sport where this is even possible. Imagine having LeBron James mic'd up with an earpiece, an earpiece, and he's being interviewed by Stan Van Gundy as the game's going on, as he's running up and down the court and he's answering questions and talking about his strategy. Would never happen, right? Mic up like Jamar Chase as he's running routes and ask him about certain things of the football game while he's trying to catch passes. Couldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. Doesn't happen. Major League Baseball though. There's so much downtime, so much inaction. You know, a lot of kids quit playing baseball because in Little League, you stick them out in the outfield, nobody hits the ball to them. You can play a whole game and never field a single ball. And so quit, the kids say, this is boring. I want to go play something else. And they quit baseball. Today, with the way baseball is being played, where it's either home run, strikeout, or walk, not a whole lot to do if you're a fielder, it's kind of that same feeling. You're sitting out there all game picking dandelions like, this is boring. You can mic up Giancarlo Stanton. He doesn't have to worry about a ball being hit his way. He could stand out there for three innings and not do anything. It's either going to go over his head or it's not going to be put in play at all. Part of the issue with Major League Baseball. I don't think it's necessarily the length of the games. I will always have this argument. If you're being entertained, why do you care? College football games now take four hours. No one's complaining about it because they're entertaining. It's the inaction within the game. That only about 35% of the balls are actually put in play, whatever the number is. Half the... Half of the at-bats actually end with the ball being put in play. The other ones are strikeouts or walks. It's boring, and I love baseball. But the fact that you can have these guys mic'd up and they're talking, I know it's an all-star game, it's an exhibition, but they do it on Sunday night baseball as well. I don't think in an all-star game you you could do it in the NBA. Pro ball, because it's essentially two in touch, maybe. Maybe you could mic up a guy, but not really while he's playing the game. In between plays, maybe you could talk to a quarterback. But while Aaron Rodgers is dropping back, you think he's going to be answering questions with you know, uh, Kevin Burkhart in the booth about what he's seeing from the defense? Can't happen. My second takeaway from the last couple of days that represents a bigger issue in Major League Baseball. And let me preface this. I should have said this off the top. I love Major League Baseball. I had to give the same spiel yesterday because nowadays it's in vogue to rip baseball. 
I love baseball. I watch a game every night. Because the season's so long, I watch more baseball than any other sport. I love it. I used to work in it. I always have a soft spot for baseball. Uh, I, I was, it was my sport, maybe my favorite sport for a time growing up. I love it. But that doesn't mean there's not issues with the game. The number two thing that stood out to me, when Rob Manfred held his press conference yesterday, they were talking about this lawsuit where the minor league baseball players sued Major League Baseball and uh, ended up winning. They got like $200 million, whatever it was. But to me, it's a microcosm of I've never seen so many issues within the sport itself. I've never seen so many baseball players themselves complain about how bad their own sport is. It'd be like if you went on a job interview, and when you're being uh, toured, right, you're given a tour of the facility, everywhere you go, one of the employees is telling you how bad the job sucks, how bad the company is. Like, hey, nice to meet you. Yeah, you really don't want to work here. This place blows. The boss is a jerk. They don't treat you right. Right, they underpay you, and every step you go, everyone's telling you something negative. By the time that job interview is done, you're like, eh, I don't think I want that job. When I hear baseball player after baseball player complaining about their own sport, ah, the commissioner doesn't know what he's doing. The baseballs aren't right. The baseballs are juiced. The seams are too tight. We have too many home runs. We got a, a lockout, a holdout, because the guys want more money. The owners aren't giving us enough money. When I hear so many, so many uh, complaints from the players, why should I care? Right? If you're unhappy with the product, why shouldn't I be? If I went to go interview for a place and everyone's telling me, like, yeah, this is, really, this is a lousy place to work. I'm not very happy here. I'm not going to sit down with the boss and hope I get the job. I want to get the hell out of there. Go interview somewhere else. You have to inspire me. You have to show that you're having. If you're having fun, I can have fun with the sport as well. My third takeaway from last night and the last couple of days of Major League Baseball is what we already know. The sport's all about home runs. And last night when you watch that All-Star game, it may be a preview of the playoffs. And it's why I warn Yankee fans, even Braves fans this year. The Braves are third in the league in what they call the Guillen stat after Ozzie Guillen. Because back before home runs were all the rage, the Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 2005, doing it by simply just hitting a bunch of home runs. And that was such an outlier at the time that it now has its own stat. What percentage of runs are scored on homers? It's called the Guillen stat after Ozzie Guillen. The Yankees are number one in the league. They're at about 54% this year. The Braves are now number three in the league at about 48, 49% of the runs score on homers. It's a bit of a concern. You get to the All-Star game last night where it's all the best pitchers in the league. The game was 3-2, to two, low scoring. And four of the five runs scored on a couple of swings of the bat, a few home runs. The NL did get a run in the bottom of the first on a little bit of a rally. We had a double and a single and then a, a double play. But otherwise, all the other runs were on homers. And they only scored in two half innings. The NL scored their two runs in the first off a pitcher who didn't have his best stuff. And then the AL scored their three runs in the fourth off a, a pitcher that didn't have his best stuff. You take away Tony Gosselin, and the AL last night had four hits and no runs in the other eight innings. You take away uh, McClanahan, who started the game for the AL, the NL had one hit and no runs the other eight innings. The best hitters against the best pitchers. Good pitching still beats good hitting. And last night after that first inning when McClanahan didn't have his best stuff, you had to run through eight other pitchers. They held the NL, the best hitters in the NL, to one hit and no runs over eight innings because it's either you hit home runs or you don't score. And when you go up against the best pitching, it's a lot harder to hit home runs or at least get guys on base before hitting those solo home runs. And when we reach the playoffs, we see it every year. The Yankees will lead the league in homers every year. They'll make it to the playoffs, and then they'll struggle to score runs in the playoffs, and we scratch our heads and wonder why. It's my concern for the Yankees this year. It's even my concern for the Braves this year. The Braves went through a streak last week where their only runs scored over a four-game stretch were on homers. 
If they didn't homer, they didn't score a single run for four straight games. It's a hard way to make a living when you get to October. And my fourth takeaway from the last couple of days is about the stars of Major League Baseball. We have gotten to a point as a society where we're really all about stars. Stars drive everything. The NBA has become a star-driven league. In the NFL, the quarterbacks are the biggest stars. They're making big-time money now. Major League Baseball, the problem is it's still such a team game. We always say football is the ultimate team sport. But baseball is such a team game in the sense that, you know, the Texas Rangers went out and got Alex Rodriguez 20 years ago, giving him, like, the biggest contract, and he was an MVP and didn't make a difference. The Rangers were in last place before A-Rod got there. They were still in last place when they added him because he's just one guy out of nine. And so when you look at Major League Baseball, Juan Soto probably going to be traded the next couple of weeks. One of the best players in the sport, 23 years old. Doesn't matter. The Nationals are still horrendous, and you have no reason to tune in. Nobody pays attention to Juan Soto because he's on a bad team. The Angels have two of the all-time greats, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. And yet, it doesn't matter. They haven't had a winning season in Otani's career. You have no reason to pay attention to the Angels. You don't see the great things that Otani does. Meanwhile, in the NFL, when you have a star player, you have a team that's relevant. How often has Aaron Rodgers' team been irrelevant? Right? How often will Patrick Mahomes be irrelevant, or the Chiefs will be in last place with Patrick Mahomes? How often will Josh Allen not be in the conversation in the AFC? How many teams have there been in the NFL, even NFL history, that have a great quarterback that finishes in last place and you pay no attention to them? It doesn't happen. In the NFL, it is the ultimate team sport. You need the offensive line to block. You need guys to throw to. But quarterbacks have become so good that you get that one star, it changes everything. You draft Joe Burrow, now you're in a Super Bowl. Major League Baseball, you add Shohei Otani, you're still in last place. And nobody has any reason to pay attention to the Angels and one of the game stars. In the NBA, same idea. How often is one of the best players in the sport irrelevant? You could tell me LeBron James this past year. I don't think LeBron James is top three in the league like Otani just won the MVP. You can make the case Otani's the best player in baseball. I don't think LeBron's the best player in the NBA anymore. But when he was, you paid attention to the Cavs, the Heat, the Cavs again every year. The rest of the team was terrible in Cleveland. But they had LeBron, and they were competitive, and they were relevant, and you were paying attention. And even when they weren't good, like this past year for the Lakers, you're still paying attention to LeBron. What's everyone talking about this offseason? LeBron and Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis. You don't get that same drive with Shohei Otani. The Angels are in last place. Nobody cares. Yeah, they have Trout and Otani, but you're not watching. You're not talking about them. You're not thinking about them. In the NBA, even in the NFL, when you have stars, you have relevancy. You have interest. You usually have a team that is pretty good. Major League Baseball, doesn't matter. And Juan Soto wants to get out of Washington for a reason, because they're horrendous, and no one's paying attention to them. Same idea with Otani and Mike Trout in, in Anaheim. They're just being wasted. You're not watching them. You don't care. No one's talking about them. Two of the all-time greats are going to have largely irrelevant careers. It only happens in baseball. Which takes me to my final point, and this is where I'll defend Major League Baseball, that it's not entirely their fault. Because you look at these stars, they don't want to be in the spotlight. Mike Trout doesn't like doing interviews or advertisements. Same idea with Otani. Otani, now, granted, he comes from another country. I'm not sure how much English he speaks. I don't know. I think he speaks fairly well. But... He also, uh, according to reports, because he's pitching, he's, he's a two-way player, he wants to focus on his game. He doesn't like doing a lot of media. So you don't have these guys that are out in the forefront. Whereas in the NBA, you know, Magic Johnson was a big personality. Michael Jordan was a star. He was doing movies during his playing career. Now he's still in the league. He was doing all sorts of commercials. Charles Barkley is the biggest star of them all. In the NFL, Tom Brady. Can we go one day without hearing about Tom Brady? 
Now on social media, the guy's got to put out a post every day. As soon as he's going to retire, he's going to become a broadcaster. God forbid Tom Brady disappears for 30 seconds. Rob Gronkowski, similar. Right? He's always out there. Aaron Rodgers now has kind of become like that. Whether it's about the tattoo or it's about co- whatever else, his girlfriend, the long hair, enough with us. Major League Baseball, it's not the same thing. You never hear about Mike Trout. You don't really care what Mike Trout's doing, what he thinks. Doesn't do a lot of interviews. Same with Otani. Same with a lot of these other stars in Major League Baseball. And so for Major League Baseball, I'll defend them in that sense. The other stars, in part, are stars because they want to be in the spotlight. Peyton Manning, how long did he go away for? Now he's got his own broadcast on Monday Night Football. Right? God forbid these stars just go off and have a quiet retirement. Joe Namath, talk about a big star. But in Major League Baseball, you don't really have that. David Ortiz was a big personality a couple years ago. Maybe you would say A-Rod, but that's more about kind of being infamous. People don't really like A-Rod. But like, there's a documentary that started this week on Derek Jeter. And everyone's wondering, like, do we really need a seven? He's not the most interesting. He was a great player. Is Derek Jeter really all that interesting? Do we need seven hours to break down Derek Jeter's career? Part of the problem with baseball. I don't know if it's because it's a long season and it's a grind. I don't know if it's because they don't always play in the biggest cities. I don't know what it may be. Maybe just because baseball is not as popular now as it once was. But I think the stars aren't as much in the forefront either. They don't put themselves in the spotlight as much as NFL players. NBA players, and that doesn't help Major League Baseball either. And there's not much the league can do about that. You just need interesting personalities, and Major League Baseball oftentimes don't really have them. Interview Garrett Cole. Right, That guy is the biggest bore in the league. Zach Ranke, even like a Clayton Kershaw, not very interesting people. Uh, maybe it's the makeup of a, a baseball player. I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that you know a large portion of the league are international players that maybe don't feel as comfortable doing a ton of uh, media. But Major League Baseball struggles in that they don't have the stars that just put themselves out there and want to be the center of the attention like a lot of other sports. But I was watching the All-Star Game, Home Run Derby, everything else going on these last couple of days. Five things that stood out about the spot that baseball is in right now and what it says about the sport in the larger picture moving forward. Hey, when we come back, we've been previewing and breaking down a conference every day throughout the week, working our way towards the SEC on Friday. Monday, we broke down the Pac-12. Yesterday, we looked at the Big 12. Today... With the ACC Media Days beginning, we break down the ACC and Clemson and everybody else. When we come back, I'll let you know who's going to win the conference, who will finish where. Give you a little glimpse of each team this year. We'll break it all down next. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we preview and break down the ACC. I give you my picks for how the ACC will finish up this year. What should be expected for Clemson and everybody else? We'll get to that coming up in just a little bit here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Again, just a reminder, at some point, we may just uh, drop out on terrestrial radio for a few moments as they work on something over at our satellites. So in the meantime, download our app, search ESPN Charleston in the App Store, and uh, you can listen to the show live through the app. Without any interruption today. Also, online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker as well. The stream will be unaffected, but the over the broadcast 
over-the-air broadcast will be impacted for just a little bit as they work on the satellites, and it may occur at some point during the show this afternoon. Hey, we opened up the afternoon talking about the All-Star Game and Major League Baseball's All-Star Week. Before we get to the ACC, I did find this interesting. You know, a lot of times you forget how things used to be because you're so used to how they are now. I saw a friend of mine um, a couple of weeks ago, and he had the old iPhone, like what is it, the iPhone 8 where it still has the button? And it was so weird, and it was foreign. And I remember back when I got the phone, the iPhone, that for the first time got rid of the button. And I thought, this is really weird. I don't like this. Then I forgot the iPhone ever had a button. Until my buddy uh, handed me his phone a couple weeks ago, and I thought, this is really weird. How do we ever use a phone that had a button? You forget how things used to be very quickly. It wasn't like that was that long ago. You forget how things used to be because of how they are now. And I say that because my father actually sent me a list yesterday of all the home run derby winners. And I think I mentioned this briefly on air yesterday, but it is interesting to go back and look and see that in, for example, 1990, the winner hit just three home runs. It wasn't that long ago. We're not talking about like the 40s or the dead ball era. Uh, 30 years ago, the winner in the home run derby hit three homers. The other night, Julio Rodriguez hit like over 60 in the competition and didn't even win. So I went back. I tried to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole yesterday on YouTube because I wanted to see what were these home run derbies like. And through my investigation, you may recall this if you're of a certain age and you have a good memory and you remember what things were like and not just what they currently are. But the Home Run Derby first started in 1985, the official one of the All-Star break, and it was not broadcasted until the 90s. It wasn't until 1993 that it was actually broadcasted on TV. Before that, they used to just show you highlights and do a little package on it. You know, like it's Sports Center and you're watching your highlights from the basketball game the night before. But it wasn't until... 93 that it was actually broadcasted and even 93 was on tape delay and they didn't show you all the hitters in 1993 for example i watched it on youtube last night they cut out mike piazza because he didn't sit he didn't hit a single home run in the derby in 93 and piazza is the best home run hitting catcher we've ever had back then you could hit three homers and win the home run derby it was strange and it wasn't until 1998 that they actually broadcasted it live fully the 91 Home Run Derby in Toronto took place in the afternoon before the All-Star Game and was not carried live on TV. What a different time. Now, the Home Run Derby, it gets like more viewers than the actual All-Star Game. But it wasn't that long ago. Just 24 years ago was the first time they actually carried it live on TV on ESPN during the All-Star break. You may remember that if you're a big enough baseball fan from the 90s, but mid-90s wasn't even live. It wasn't until 98 when you had Sosa McGuire in their home run chase. They thought, yeah, this is a big deal. we got to show this live and the whole thing. Up until then, it was, you know, same-day uh, tape delay, and they would cut out certain things, and it would be like a one-hour production piece watching the Home Run Derby. And they say, ah, we, we skipped ahead, and you missed Albert Bell hitting three home runs. He's been eliminated. Right? They'd only show you the big hitters that actually had an impact on the winner. Anyways, found that interesting. It's hard to remember back to that day when now the Home Run Derby is a pretty big deal. But it wasn't that long ago that it was largely irrelevant. All right, let me get to this. We've been previewing a, a conference, a Power 5 conference every day, throughout the week. We'll get to the SEC on Friday, but today is the ACC's day, and we'll break down the ACC throughout the afternoon. But let's start with this. I'll give you my rankings, my predictions of how each division is going to finish up this year and what I expect from each team. It is time to preview the ACC. And my disclaimer, because you have a different audience at all hours of every day, we use the SEC theme because... Find me any college football song better. So sorry, ACC fans. You get stuck with the SEC theme for your breakdown today. Let's start with the Coastal. We'll save Clemson for last. You know, we always say Coastal Chaos because it has a different winner every year in the Coastal. 
This year, if we work our way from seven up to one, Duke clearly is the worst team in the division. They were horrendous last year, made a coaching change. They're one and 17 their last two years in the ACC. There'll be something similar again this year, win maybe one game. They lost their head coach. They replaced him with a first-time head coach. They lost their starting quarterback, their number one rusher, their number one pass catcher. A lot of changes for Duke, which was already a bad program. They'll be the worst team in the Coastal. Right ahead of them, not much better, will probably be Georgia Tech. They have the fewest returning starters in the ACC coming back. They lost their star running back who transferred to Alabama. And by the way, they have the toughest schedule in the ACC this year. Jeff Collins has won exactly three games in each of his first three years. He's on the hot seat. I don't think they win many more this year, and I think he'll be out of a job at Georgia Tech. I don't think they'll be very good. The other team in the Coastal I'm also very concerned about, Virginia Tech. They lost their starting quarterback and seven of their starters on offense, including their number one pass catcher and their number one rusher. A lot of missing pieces. They also brought in a new coach who's a first-time coach. I have a lot of questions and concerns with Virginia Tech this year. Then we get to the top four of the Coastal, where I think we take a little bit of a step up in class. I like Virginia this year to be a bit of a tough out in year one of Tony Elliott. You get Brennan Armstrong coming back, who was second in the nation last year for quarterbacks in total yards per game. Dual threat quarterback with some experience. He also has his top three pass catchers coming back, and now you have Tony Elliott, an offensive mind, running that team. They've had a defensive coach the last couple years. So I like that combination. You give me Tony Elliott with an interesting quarterback and some good wide receivers, maybe they could do some things offensively. They also have the third easiest schedule of any ACC team. My biggest concern, other than just simply Tony Elliott in year one, we don't know what we're going to get. He's never done the job before. But my other big concern, Virginia has to replace their entire offensive line. All five starters from last year are gone. That's a big issue. So they have a good quarterback. They got some good wide receivers. They have an offensive head coach. But it all starts in the trenches. I don't know about the offensive line for Virginia. But if they can block up front, if they can play a little defense... I'm not telling you Virginia's going to go win the Coastal, but I think they could be intriguing, especially in year one of Tony Elliott. Then we get to the top three, and they've been the clear top three, at least in terms of brand power in recent years. UNC is number three for me. They lost their quarterback. They lost their running back. They lost a lot of talent on offense the last two years specifically to the NFL. The defense is expected to be the best it's been under Mac Brown, which isn't saying a whole lot because the defense has been a real problem for UNC these last couple years. Maybe UNC is just going to be better without expectations. We've been expecting them to make the playoff the last couple years with Sam Howell. Now he's gone. You have a quarterback that nobody knows. You have a team that you're not expecting much from UNC. Without the pressure on them, maybe this is the time they'll finally do some good work. Mac Brown continues to recruit pretty well. Just they haven't put it all together yet. I don't think they win the Coastal, but I do think they'll be the third best team. But we get to the top two teams in the Coastal, and I think most people would believe these are the top two teams. You may pick one over the other. I go at Pittsburgh in second. I do think Miami wins the Coastal this year in the first year of Mario Cristobal. First on Pittsburgh, you lost your NFL quarterback who broke Dan Marino's records. You lost the number one receiver in the country went to USC. You lost your offensive coordinator who put the whole thing together. Those are big issues for Pittsburgh. Now, you do bring in Keaton Slovis. I'm intrigued by what he can do. I do think Pittsburgh will have a great defense. They usually do. And they also have the second easiest schedule in the ACC. So that's why I put them in second in the Coastal. They got a lot of guys to replace. They lost a lot of production, a lot of questions on offense. But 
right behind Clemson, right? They were right up there at Clemson last year in terms of defense. They have an easy schedule this year in the ACC, so they'll get themselves some wins. I don't think enough to win the Coastal, but they'll keep themselves competitive. I do think Miami wins the Coastal. I'm a big fan of Mario Cristobal, and the difference is, you know, Tony Elliott is a first-time head coach. Everything's new. Cristobal's in a new place, but it's his hometown. He's familiar with the area and the program, and he's been a head coach for a long time at multiple stops, including in South Florida. So I don't think there'll be any sort of learning curve year one. And you have Tyler Van Dyke, who is a uh, a long shot, if you will, a sleeper to become uh, the Heisman winner this year. He's number one in quarterback efficiency of returning quarterbacks in the ACC. He did not start the entire season a year ago, but based off of quarterback pass efficiency, he's the best of the returnees. That's the Coastal. If we look ahead to the Atlantic, Syracuse, much like Duke, is the clear bottom feeder. They've uh, had a losing record five of their last six years. Now, they do get their quarterback back. They have most of the team back from a year ago. They only lost a couple starters. They brought in a new offensive coordinator that they hope will help. And let's not forget, last year they were 5-4 and four before they fell off at the end of the year. So maybe they'll be improved this year. But I don't expect, uh, expect much from Syracuse. And I think Dino Babers will be gone after the end of the season. I put Florida State in six. They have the toughest schedule. Check that. They had the toughest schedule of any Atlantic team last year and started the year 0-4. But then when the schedule eased up a little bit, they finished the year 5-3. and This year, they'll probably have the most talented team under Mike Norvell as he continues to bring his recruits in. And they get 16 starters back from that team last year that you know, just barely missed a bowl game. So I do think they'll be better. I think they'll be competitive, but I still put them in six. Because I think the Atlantic is somewhat intriguing. I put Boston College in fifth place, but I was tempted to put them even higher. Last year, they were 4-0 with their starting quarterback. And then he got injured, and they scored the second fewest points in the ACC without him. It was a huge drop-off. He's an NFL quarterback. But during that time, the defense still was sixth in the ACC. So, you know, pretty good. They get most of their defense back. They're going to have a healthy quarterback this year who will be one of the better ones in the conference. I like their coach. I think Boston College could be tough this year. I still only put them in fifth because the Atlantic could be a little bit deeper than we think. I have Louisville finishing in fourth. What I like most about Louisville is they have a fifth-year quarterback. Malik Cunningham already has 38 starts under his belt. We were just talking on Monday about quarterback experience, how it made the difference for Kenny Pickett last year. A lot of guys that go on to the NFL were guys that had a lot of starts, spent four years at their school, were 22 years old, 23 years old their final year. So Louisville, you have that going for you with your quarterback. Plus, your number one wide receiver is coming back from last year. Your number one rusher is coming back. You have an offensive coach, so this offense could be dynamic. You also have a coach who's coaching for his job. So he may be a little desperate and do a better job this year. 14 starters coming back in total for Louisville. My biggest concern for them, they have the second toughest schedule in the ACC and the toughest schedule in the Atlantic Division. That's the biggest issue. But this offense could be intriguing. Then we get to the top three. I put Wake Forest in third after what they did a year ago. Sam Hartman's back. That's huge. He also has eight other starters returning on offense. They averaged over 40 points a game. Right, The offense should be good again this year. The defense, though, will probably be lousy once again, and that's their downfall. We also saw the difference that as good as they were, they don't have the talent to keep up with Clemson. I imagine that'll be the case once again this year. NC State I have finishing second which means I have Clemson winning the Atlantic. And I'll be honest with you, 
I've been very tempted all offseason to think NC State could win the ACC this year. They certainly could. I've been very tempted to actually pick them to do so. But I'm going to go with the safer pick of Clemson. NC State, though, they have the most experienced roster in the ACC this year. They have a coach who's been there for a long time. No changes in the coaching staff. They have the most continuity from last year to this year in the ACC. They have a quarterback in Devin Leary who I think is really underrated. 35 touchdowns, only five interceptions last year. He's really good. They also beat Clemson already last year. I like this NC State team, but I'm banking on Clemson winning the Atlantic just because it's the safer play. They've dominated the conference. They did not win the ACC last year, of course. I do think they'll get back there this year in the ACC championship. I think it's a safer bet to expect Clemson will bounce back than Dave Doran will actually go win the ACC, or at least the Atlantic. So it's not great reasoning, but I'm going to take Clemson. They'll have the best defense in the conference. They'll have one of the best defenses in the country. I don't know what you're going to get in the quarterback position, but they have more talent on paper than anybody else in the Atlantic and really the ACC. So I'm just going to hope that talent wins out. And you also at least have Cade Klubnick that if DJ falters again, maybe you have a better option behind him. In fact, later on this afternoon, we'll look at how long the leash could be for DJ this year. But I'm going to bank on the fact that Clemson won't have back-to-back down seasons and they get back to the ACC title game. But NC State could be really tough this year in that conference. And those are my predictions for the ACC this year. Give me Clemson-Miami in the conference championship game, and that would be a lot of fun. I think Mario Cristobal does a really good job in Miami, and I'm going to bank on Clemson getting back to the top of the ACC this year after what transpired a year ago. When we come back, we continue to look at the ACC. What will be the biggest storylines in that conference this football season? We'll do that next. Tomorrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the biggest storylines in the ACC this year. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Gave you my rundown of how I expect things to finish up in the ACC this year. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. I would say the biggest storylines in the ACC this year, to put them in order, I suppose, number five may be coaching's uh, on the hot seat because I think by year's end we could see some changes. I think Satterfield at Louisville is coaching for his job. I think Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech's coaching for his job. We just did see some changes this past offseason. Quite a few changes for coaches in the ACC. I think Dino Babers is coaching for his job at Syracuse, though. And uh, I think also Mike Norvell is also, depending on how things go this year, right? he's also on the hot seat. People wanted him fired after that 0-4 start last year. And then Florida State turned things around. So there's a handful of coaches that may be coaching for their jobs this season. That takes me to number four, which is Mac Brown. Can Mac Brown finally get UNC over the hump? I reference it many times, but it's my pet cemetery theory based on the Stephen King book that was then turned into a, a famous movie. But you always wish, right, the idea of the movie, you wish your pets could come back to life. You miss them, 
And then they come back, except now they're haunted and they're tormenting you. And the point being that things aren't always as good the second time around, or you can't always get that magic back. You try to duplicate a great experience you had. It's never as good the second time. You try to get back with somebody a second time thinking, it'll be different this time. You find out, no, it's exactly the same. Or vice versa, right? Everyone's not as good as the first experience. And so for Mac Brown, UNC went back to that well, thinking, well, Mac Brown was successful last time. Let's get back to the good old days. And it's not been good. They have underperformed. They have underwhelmed. They've been one of the bigger disappointments, really, last couple of years in terms of expectations. They had a losing season last year. Lost to the Gamecocks in a bowl game. Is this the year Mac Brown finally gets UNC over the hump? And if not, how long are you willing to wait around if you're a UNC fan? They won seven games, eight games, and six games. Good. Not great. They've been just a couple of games over 500 his first three years when we were talking about this team as a playoff team. People are calling UNC the next dynasty, the next Clemson. Where has it been? Number three on my list of storylines is Pittsburgh with the Kenny Pickett replacement. They brought in Keaton Slovis. They uh, you know, won the conference a year ago. But you have to replace a guy who broke Dan Marino's records, was drafted higher than Marino. Now, part of that is just the era of the sport today. But Kenny Pickett was probably the second-best quarterback they've had behind Marino, right? And now you have to replace him. And I'm curious to see for Pittsburgh, was it more about what Kenny Pickett did for the program or what the program did for Kenny? Because people point to, you know, why did he take off that final year? How come he didn't play that well before? Was it the offensive coordinator? Was it the playmakers around them? Was it everything coming together? Or was that kind of Kenny Pickett carrying that team to the conference championship? I think it had more to do with Kenny Pickett. So I'm curious to see what Pittsburgh can do to try to replace the best quarterback they've had in 40 years. The number two storyline is Mario Cristobal in Miami. It may not be this first year, but I do think he's the guy that will get Miami back to where they want to be. With that said, I also have pretty high expectations for him in his first year because I just picked them to win their division and get to the ACC championship. I think, uh, I mean, he's already hit the ground running. Great recruiting classes already. I think he's a natural fit. I think he's a good coach. I think he's going to do a good job in Miami, but how is he going to do in year one? Miami is one of the biggest brands still in college football, and a lot of attention is being paid to them to see how they do. And then to me, the biggest storyline in the ACC, and it's not just because of where we're located. I'm not pandering here. It is the Clemson quarterback position because Clemson's believed to be the best team in the ACC. They want to get back to trying to win a national championship this year, but it all comes back to the quarterback. And Clemson fans or Clemson supporters will point to, hey, we had, they're going to have a great defense. They had a great defense last year, second best behind Georgia. They still lost three games, weren't in the ACC title game, and played in the Cheez-It Bowl. You need elite quarterback play. Are they going to get good enough quarterback play this year to win the ACC? And if they do win the ACC, can they take that next step to actually compete for a national championship, or are they going to just get to the playoff and you know not be able to hang? The biggest story in the ACC, I think it's the linchpin, is the Clemson quarterback position. And if it's not good enough, maybe then you have a Wake Forest that's able to step up this year like they did last year. Somebody that, you know, when Clemson leaves that door open, they're ready to walk through it. This year, it's probably going to be NC State if Clemson's not up to the task. And I think it solely comes down to the quarterback. Coordinators will be a big question as well, of course, replacing the two coordinators. But I think the bigger impact will be the quarterback. What type of quarterback play are you going to get? And later on this afternoon, we'll look at how long that leash could or maybe should be for DJ this year if he gets off to a slow start. But I think the quarterbacks in the Atlantic division are really interesting in the ACC. NC State with Devin Leary, good quarterback. Wake Forest had maybe the second-best quarterback in the conference a year ago. He's coming back. Louisville has a fifth-year quarterback in Malik Cunningham who will be very intriguing. And then Boston College, 
I can never say his name right, Jerkovich, whatever it is. I like him maybe the most in terms of forecasting his future. He's an NFL quarterback, I assume, depending on how things go this year. And then you get to maybe DJ, right? Forget being the best quarterback in the ACC or the Atlantic. I think DJ may be fifth in his own division. That's an interesting division for quarterbacks. NC State, Wake Forest, Louisville, Boston College, all have pretty good quarterbacks. Maybe not good enough to go win a national championship, but could be good enough to make things tough in the ACC. And then in the Coastal, I think Miami has the best quarterback of the bunch with Tyler Van Dyke, and that's why, in part, I think they win the Coastal. Tony Elliott has an interesting quarterback coming back, and Brennan Armstrong. It may not be your C.J. Stroud and your Bryce Young, but there's some intriguing quarterback play, or could be some intriguing quarterback play in the ACC this year. Unfortunately, probably doesn't include D.J. And if D.J. is on that list, I don't know if he'll pass all those guys by this year. We'll wrap up Hour 1 when we come back, and we'll continue to break down the ACC throughout the afternoon. Plus, coming up later on, we'll get to all sorts of audio and sound from SEC Media Days as well. We'll hear from Dabo later. We'll hear from the ACC Commissioner. A lot going on with SEC Media Days, ACC Media Days. We'll get to it all later on in the afternoon. It's the Mar Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up hour one of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Today is a big day, not because ACC Media Days have started or SEC Media Days are going on, nothing. Because today's the anniversary of the moon landing. We landed on the moon on this day, 1969. So that was 53 years ago? 53 years ago today, landed on the moon for the first time. Now, Trent, I put you on the spot. Do you believe... We actually landed on the moon in 1969. Oh, jeez. Don't do this to me. Uh, you know what? I, yes, we did. All right? I'm not going to be one of those guys that's saying, no, it was fake. It was on a Hollywood set at Paramount or whatever mm-hmm. it was back in the 60s. No, I do believe we landed on the moon. Let's stop being foolish here, folks. Now, we talk about some other theories that we can get into, but I do believe we landed on the moon. I, I, I agree. Now, people say, well, how come we haven't gone back since? Eh, fair question, I guess. I'm what did not... we find? That's what I ask. What did we find? Ooh. And also, people say, what, like the, the flag was waving? There's no wind up on the moon? Why was the flag waving? And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories. <laughs> I do believe it, though. They also said we should uh, be able to get back by 2024, including the first female astronaut. We'll see if that actually happens, but there's some sort of program uh, going on right now in NASA to try to get back to the moon in the next about two years. Buzz Aldrin's uh, jacket could fetch $2 million at an auction in the next couple of weeks. The, the jacket he wore to go, that'd be pretty cool. I'm not big into memorabilia. I certainly wouldn't spend $2 million, but if you have the money, that'd be kind of cool to have the jacket of Buzz Aldrin when he went onto the moon. Give me the flag. I, I want the flag. Let's go get the flag and bring, <laughs> bring it, it back, back, and I'll pay whatever. I'll pay whatever. That would be the ultimate uh, like America move. <laughs> go up there, bring the flag back just to sell it to somebody. That's it, baby. I took this off the moon to sell this for <laughs> millions of dollars. 
Now, I already hesitate to ask the question, is there a conspiracy theory that you buy into that you believe is true? Oh, I don't know if we can talk about them <laughs> uh, on, on the airwaves, Luke Morrow, but uh, there's a couple. Now, you know what I will say? The uh, the most foolish one out there has to be the flat earth. Like That, that oh, has yes. to be by far the most foolish one. But maybe uh, maybe you and I can start a little podcast where we yeah. talk about some theories, Luke Morrow. Cause we I can get love into a good it. conspiracy theory. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to sports, I do think there's quite a few. I believe... The 2002 Western Conference Finals was rigged for the Lakers. We know about Tim Donahue got in trouble. He was working in that series. I think that game was set up for the, the Lakers to get past the Sacramento Kings. I also believe David Stern made sure Patrick Ewing went to the Knicks in 1985. We had Michael Francis on the show who said he was told Michael Jordan did have to leave because of his gambling problems, and Francis was working with the NBA in the 90s. And I've told my story before, but I know for a fact the Cal Ripken theory is true about the lights going out to preserve his streak. That's a true story. Hour two next. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get back to the ACC coming up. How long's the leash on DJ this year for Clemson? How long will they be able to afford? Plus, plenty of sound from the college football world later on today with the SEC Media Days now crossing with the ACC Media Days. Everybody's talking. We'll get to that coming up later on. And we'll talk a little golf in just a moment. That was the Harry Nielsen song, right? Everyone's talking. Everybody's talking in the college football world. We'll play a lot of that audio later and react to it coming up. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just head over there and click on our show page. And you can find the show podcasted there. You can also leave a message for the show at charlestonsportsradio.com by clicking on our show page. We talk golf this time every Wednesday with our resident golf expert, Jeremy Schilling, who's on Twitter at Jay Schill. He writes for PGA Magazine, and he's with us now. Jeremy, good afternoon. How are you? I am well, my friend. How are you today? Oh, doing well. Uh, I'm hoping the rain finally stays away. Play a little basketball later, but all is well. Let's talk some golf. Um, wait, wait, wait. You, you've had some rain down there? Every day. When haven't we had rain? It's rained every day for weeks. I feel like we're in Seattle. Can you send that rain here because it's very hot. It's like 95 heat heat uh, um, indexes of over 100. Can you send that rain here, please? Gladly. Trent just went outside to do a rain dance with hopes of pushing that rain up towards the northeast for you. So <laughs> you can thank us later. So let's hope that that occurs. Um, yes. Let's talk about everything going on in the golf world. Uh, before we dive into the, the Open Championship and then also – live stealing the headlines this week and everything you told me there was something really uh, important happening in golf that we have to get to first i don't even know what the, uh, what's what's the biggest what's the lead story today that we have to touch on first 
Yes, this is so important. And unfortunately, it won't uh, get enough attention with everything going on. But the inaugural U.S. Adaptive Open is happening right now. This is the final day. It's happening at Pinehurst, North Carolina. This is the first ever USGA National Championship event for people with some kind of medical disabilities. We, uh, there are eight categories uh, for this, uh, and we have arm impairment, leg impairment, multiple limb amputee, vision impairment, intellectual impairment, neurological impairment, seated golfers, and short stature. Uh, these players come from some being scratched to some being 20 handicaps. But for so many veterans, uh, for so many people who were uh, born with uh, Down's uh, syndrome or any other um, issue, you know, things that happened in accidents, they, there have been golf tournaments for them here and there. There was never a United States Golf Association national championship for them. And it's finally happening, and it's happening right now. The final round is today. There is no television coverage. However, head to USGA.org, and you can find all the information on live scoring. You may remember Luke Stanford um, Center Jake Olson who went blind during his time there and, and, and had that, uh, and, uh, 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 sorry, USC. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Jake Olson. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, um, he's become basically like a two handicap golfer. He loves the sport. Um, the rules are very different where you can go carts everywhere, wheelchairs everywhere. James Colgan, Beth Ann Nichols, for Golf.com and Golf Week Magazine, respectively. Golf Channel has some highlights, but I highly recommend that. And and when uh, today ends, um, if there are no thunderstorms in North Carolina, two trophies, lowest-scoring player, men's and women's, and then a medal for the low score in each of the categories in each gender. As someone who has written 10,000 articles in my work for, for PJ Magazine, not quite, but it feels that way, about how golf has saved somebody's life and PJ Hope, which is the PGA of America's program for veterans, um, I cannot express enough how much of a game changer this is and how much of an, uh, and how much progress we will see going forward, um, purely because of the progress of now these golfers having a national title. Trophy will be displayed right next to the U.S. Open and U.S. Women's Open trophies, you know, the whole deal. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really big deal. It's the best thing happening in golf this week, and it's happening right now in Pinehurst. Yeah, very cool. Um, uh, and a great thing to certainly bring awareness to. Let's talk about what happened this past weekend with the Open, where uh, you had Cam Smith was fantastic, of course, on Sunday to come back and win, and uh, Rory was the leader going in. He was the leader at the turn and uh, played well, obviously not well enough, didn't go out there and grab the victory on Sunday, and he ends up finishing in third. What were your takeaways from what we saw on Sunday? Um, 
it's one of the most epic putting performances that we've ever seen in a final round of a major, period. He came home in 30, Luke. He came home in 30. Just, just think about that. Five straight birdies at the turn, bogey-free golf at the old course that was playing firm, fast, and hard. Strokes gained is a little bit of a weird stat over there just because of how big those greens are at St. Andrews. But he gained three shots in the field um, on, on, on Sunday putting, and, he, and uh, Rory lost two shots uh, to the field. That's the basic summary of what happened. It is not only 20 under, not only 64, but just the way he did it, making putt after putt. And this is exactly the same story that we saw at the players. When he won at the players in that Monday finish, it was putting, 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 putting. And that's Cam Smith's mojo. It was absolutely remarkable. Rory shot a two under 70 on Sunday. There's, you know, in many majors, that will win you a title. Just was not enough this week. No, certainly was not. And he comes up a, a little bit short once again, which I'm sure is, uh, is frustrating. What, what do you think? Uh, you know, you obviously, you, you golf, you cover the sport. What's more frustrating when you go out there and you don't play well and let a major slip away or when you do play pretty well, but somebody else just played so much, uh, you know, so great on Sunday for Rory. Like how frustrating was that on Sunday for him? Or do you just kind of accept like, Hey, this was Cam Smith's day. He played really good golf. So here's Rory was, was really because uh, folks have to understand the open is everything over there. And the last time it was, at, it, it was at St. Andrews. Rory was a complete idiot, played soccer with his friends, uh, sprained an ankle, could not participate. And it was one of the most emotional things for him. So to get there, get in position, and then have makeable birdie putts that he misses. He said it afterwards. The better golfer won. That's what every golfer wants. You want to be beat by somebody who plays well and plays much better than you. You don't want to be the coulda, shoulda, woulda golfer. You don't want to have a collapse. You don't want to be the one who messes up and, and hands someone a win. You want to go out there and win it yourself, period. And I think for Rory, that's eventually how he will look back on this. But because of the venue, the crowd, I mean, take the up and down at 17 that Cam Smith had for par. Putting that with the road hole bunker lurking and knowing it'll come around and then being able to make the 12-footer after that. I mean, it's just ridiculous what Cam was doing. And to this day, I think Rory will eventually look back on this as a missed opportunity, but the better golfer won. Yeah, that's certainly true. As we talk with Jeremy Schilling on Twitter at J. Schill writes for PJ Magazine, and then Live Golf comes in and does, uh, you know, really what exactly what uh, they should be doing in terms of just trying to steal the attention, the the headlines and rumors about Cam Smith, and now even Charles Barkley and everything else this week. Uh, what are your thoughts? What's the latest there with uh, Live Golf yeah, and, and the latest so announcements? It was like fifty six minutes, I believe, from when he first received the claret jug to when he first started getting asked uh, asked about the Saudis. Uh, no laying up the podcast and uh, Jamie Weir, who is a reporter for Sky Sports, uh, have are both reporting 
that the three Aussies, Cam Smith, Mark Leishman, and Adam Scott, are going to live after the President's Cup uh, in September. Um, will this possibly change Cam Smith's mind? I don't know. Adam Scott was having trouble hitting the PGA Tour minimum as is. He loves to spend time back home in Australia. So Adam Scott bolting is not a surprise. There have been two real eye-openers this week, one of which is a report, um, and I don't remember the original report, but the current report from Jamie Weir and, and No Lang Up of, and I checked back in with the No Lang Up guys on Monday just to make sure I had this number right. Hideki Matsuyama going there shortly at some point, most likely after the President's Cup as well, for $350 million. That's the biggest number yet, right? Uh, it would be besides the $1 billion that Tiger turned down, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what this entails is some kind of sponsorship element with Trixon, his longtime uh, 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 ball sponsor, to sponsor his team. These teams, as the team component comes into play, are going to have corporate sponsorships or player sponsorships or some kind of, I, I don't know how to best describe it, sponsorships. Um, and I guess Hideki is going there. Bob Turner, his longtime interpreter, who is a very nice guy by everybody who knows the tour, has suddenly been like weird, and some of his representatives have been weird with the media, even even the the uh, Japanese media, um, for which he plays under that spotlight every week. Uh, he's a very private person, so I, I, I'm I'm going to wait on Hideki. Cam surprises me. Mark Leishman shocks me because it feels like he has a nice place and a nice base here in America. David Faraday bolting from NBC to them is a shocker because it somewhat legitimizes those these telecasts that do not currently have a home. Remember, they have no TV deal in any country around the world. That's how toxic the Saudi back live series is. So keep that in mind when you look at everything that's happening here. Charles Barkley taking a meeting apparently tonight with Greg Norman. His fate on inside the NBA could be, you know, really trying to figure this out tonight. And, and could he do both? Would he have to resign from Turner? Turner has an association with the match. The match has an association with the PGA Tour. It would seem like there's a conflict there. And then the real shocker, and this is going to make no sense for anybody who lives in the United States, but for those who live overseas, they'll get it, who maybe listen to, to the uh, Moral Midday Show, ESPN Radio, Charleston, 98.9 FM, and all its affiliates. Henrik Stenson, uh, leaving the Ryder Cup captaincy for Europe in 2023 to join Liv. Now, that part hasn't been announced yet, but the captaincy part, which was made official this morning and had been reported for four days by James Corrigan and others, is shocking. 
the Ryder Cup and the Open Championship are the two biggest golf events in Europe. To earn a captaincy position, you must do something well in the eyes of the European Tour. Obviously, if you're leaving the European uh, Tour to join the Saudis, who they've now suspended people from, you know, from playing on their tour because they went to the Saudis, you're not going to be able to be Ryder Cup captain. But if you ask Sir Nick or, you know, Seve's obviously passed, but any past European captain, Padraig Harrington, Thomas Bjorn, who's the rumored one who was the 2018 captain, if I'm not mistaken, um, these guys will tell you that it is like one of the greatest honors of their lifetime. Tiger in the U.S. is President's Cup captaincy, one of the greatest honors of his lifetime. And you take that away by joining the Saudis for money? I mean, I cannot tell you how big of a deal this is in Europe, how big of a negative deal this is uh, in Europe. This is going to play as a shocker over there. And the 2018 champion golfer of the year will never be looked at uh, the same way in Europe for doing this. And I, I'm stunned that he would actually do it. It's an absolutely stunning move. And if you've seen some people on Twitter in the uh, golf world being like, what the heck is the big deal? Just realize the Open Championship and the Ryder Cup, the two biggest events on continent Europe, if you give up that captaincy, it's a really big deal. Talking with Jeremy Schilling on Twitter at Jay Schill, writes for PJ Magazine. What'd you think of uh, what we saw from Tiger Woods this past weekend? I love that you asked the question in the order that you did, because I was joking with Trent that we kind of need like a bleep, you know, noise going forward because it's like, can we enjoy everything we saw last week, right? Like, we're right back to this. Yeah. We're right back to having this conversation, which we've had for how many weeks in a row now, Luke? Yeah, quite, I mean, quite a few. It's, 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 it's just, you know, totally ridiculous. Tiger um, could not get the putter to work. And is it a bad omen when you drive it in a divot to start your week on number one? Probably. But make the four-footer coming back for bogey uh, or for, yeah, four bogey. And you open up in double, with double, and you put yourself behind the eight ball. And um, what we saw is somebody who saw his, not his golf mortality, not his open championship golf mortality, but the distinct possibility that he will never play St. Andrews, his favorite golf course in the world, ever again as a competitor and to see it gone after two days where he had circled this on his calendar and had been practicing there since Saturday of last week. Um, I told you on Wednesday's show, I was concerned that he was trying too hard. The 2006 masters comparison. And while he got it back in order on Friday, a little bit in terms of um, how his game looked and his game, you know, uh, uh, Tita Green looked fine, but his short game was just abysmal. And where does that come from? Reps. The same way that if you want to play pickup hoops, where does it come from? Reps. What's holding you back from that right now? All this rain. That's right. Uh, um, and 
that's the situation right now with Tiger. He can't get enough competitive reps under him. He can't play between tournaments. But I do want to give a shout-out to him. He did text John Wood, um, former caddy, now NBC commentator. Um, he's, he's on vacation in Tiger's. I, I will not disclose where he is, but, but he is on vacation with his family and took the time to, to respond to John Wood about how he would take the four-shot lead that both Rory and Victor Hovland had going into Sunday. Um, so really interesting stuff uh, from, from Tiger, a very emotional Tiger, an open Tiger, um, a Tiger who passionately pleaded for golfers to not go to the Saudis. And here I am going down that track again on Tuesday. And, and will that turn out to be the most momentous moment um, of, of the 150th Open for him? He's not done with the Open Championship, but he may be done at St. Andrews. They have not announced when this is coming back. And now that we're off cycle, we don't know if it's 2027, 2025, or 2030. Before we let you go, talking with Jeremy Schilling, uh, who do you like? What do you expect this weekend with the 3M Open that begins tomorrow? Oh, man, it's a really weak field. Uh, so don't be surprised if somebody you've never heard of goes on and wins this thing. In my one-and-done league, I'm kind of in this position of having to just pick guys for some of these events that um, I that may be going to the Live Golf Series because I have to use them now because who knows when they're going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, as as totally depressing as that sounds. Um, so I will say Hideki Matsuyama, his game has kind of been coming around, ironically. Um, but Tony Finau is also in this field. So there's like some guys to like, but there's also, this is just a very weak field. And I think we're going to get a first-time winner out of this. I feel bad for them. Just a really bad place in the schedule and, and these two weeks. Um, this and the Rocket Mortgage next week outside Detroit. Just trying to kind of, you know, it's big for the guys around 125. It's big for those guys. Um, you know, Ches Reevy won the opposite field event, Luke. Uh, and I, I, I thought the stat was wrong when I first heard it. Ches Reevy winning the Barracuda Championship. First guy over 40, sorry, 40 or over to win on the PGA Tour this season. Hmm. That's 40-plus events. Yeah, that's something. Um, it is something. It's all becoming. That's a, everything's becoming a younger man's game, uh, except when I get out there on the, the the pickup basketball court. Let me tell you, I still give those kids the business. Hey, uh, before we let you go, real quick, uh, Brooks Kepka, is there some sort of update with him? I mean, he's on his honeymoon right now, and his game has just been so bad that, as Damon Lynch as reported for golf week magazine, is there another procedure coming, uh, you know, with the live series and, and, and this being not needing to play a certain number of events now that the, you know, major season is over. Um, is I'm, I'm not speculating on anything medical with Brooks, but Brooks Kepka is not right. That's the bottom line. His game's not sharp. He's not there. The whole live thing, I think, is, has become a huge distraction. And the guy who we talked major after major after major being in contention, AWOL. 
Yeah, we'll see what happens there as he's uh, Jeremy Schilling on Twitter at Jay Schill, writes for PGA Magazine. He joins us every Wednesday to talk golf at this time. Jeremy, appreciate it as always. Uh, we'll do it again next week. Can't wait. We start getting to talk about hashtag training camp storylines in right. the NFL. That's right. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to it. Thanks as always, Luke. Hey, our pleasure as always. Jeremy Schilling. Get to talk about Zach Wilson and all those cougars he's chasing. Or maybe you move away from that and talk more about the football. Either way, whatever floats your boat. Uh, When we come back, there's a crisis in Major League Baseball. We opened the show. I gave you some takeaways from the last couple of days in Major League Baseball's All-Star Week and what stood out to me from last night in the All-Star Game and what it means for the big picture of baseball. But away from that conversation... There's a crisis in Major League Baseball. It has nothing to do with, with what's going on on the field, and we need to fix it now. We'll do that next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. There is a crisis. Call it an epidemic. We got a fix in Major League Baseball. One person at a time. We'll do that here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Because if nothing else, I'm always here to try to solve the problems in the world, or at least the sports world. And we'll uh, tackle one in just a moment. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Jeremy Schilling talking all things golf. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand, such as our conversation with Jeremy. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however... You listen to your podcast or also online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page, find the podcast there. Open the show talking about last night's All-Star Game and some of my big-picture takeaways for baseball. But away from that and the on-field product, there's a more serious issue that we need to speak on. Somewhere Bobby's going to be smiling when he hears this, but it's this great debate of have a catch or play catch. When you go out and you throw the baseball around with your father, with a buddy, with your son, whatever it may be, are you having a catch or are you playing catch? And what do you say? Do you say, hey, kid, want to go have a catch? Or do you say, hey, hey, dad, want to go play catch? This is the audio that will make Bobby very happy because they asked a bunch of the All-Stars this week what they say. I am camp have a catch. Most others, especially around here, tell me it's play catch. And uh, a lot of the Major League Baseball players seem to agree with that as well. Here's a bunch of All-Stars being asked, is it have a catch or play catch? Is it have a catch or play catch? Play catch. Ah. Play catch. Play catch. Play catch. Uh, have a catch. Play 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 catch. I would say play catch. Play catch. Play catch. For sure. How about catch? Nice play catch. Play catch. Play catch. Play catch. Very disappointing. I think the final number was like 18 to 2. 18 people said play catch. Only two said have a catch. And those who said have a catch are Edwin Diaz, pitcher for the Mets, who's from Puerto Rico, and Corey Seager, who's now the shortstop of the Texas Rangers, who's from North Carolina. The belief is that it's more of like a Northeast thing where people say um, uh, have a catch. But I've also known people in Florida who also said they said the same thing, maybe because a lot of people come down from the Northeast into Florida infiltrated the vernacular, I don't know. 
But I will continue to say it's have a catch. You're not playing anything. You're going out and you're throwing the ball around. You're having a catch. It's like when you say to a buddy, you, you want to have a beer? Like you want to grab a beer? Same idea. You don't play. If you play something, there needs to be a winner and a loser. You play baseball, but you don't play catch. What are you playing? You're just throwing the ball around. And it's a real problem in baseball that we have all these all-stars supposed to be representing the sport who have played the game their entire life going around and saying play catch. Now, of course, we've tackled this conversation many times on the Morrow Midday Show and these airwaves, even on Fan Talk as well. But the greatest proof of this is the movie Field of Dreams. Now, I'll tell you that the movie Field of Dreams is one of the most overrated movies ever. It's not very good. People talk about how they cry at the end. I don't, I don't know. Go out and do something crying at Field of Dreams. But nonetheless, the one thing Field of Dreams certainly got right is in the movie, in that great scene at the end that you cry at, what does Kevin Costner say? He asks his father if he wants to have a catch, not play catch. So if you want to tell me that Field of Dreams is the, the be-all, end-all of baseball movies, I'll agree with you on the fact that they at least know what to call it when you're going to throw the baseball around. And if Kevin Costner's character dare say to his father, hey, you want to play catch? We all know damn well his father would have turned his back on his son in disgust and walked back into that cornfield to never see his son again. The only reason why he stuck around to have a catch because he was so proud that Kevin Costner's character got it right and said, have a catch. If he said, Dad, you want to play catch? He would have spit in his face and said, I'm going back in that cornfield to never see you again, son. You embarrass me. Just like these all-stars who try to tell me it's play catch. You're not playing anything. You play tiddlywinks. There's got to be a winner and a loser. You don't play. How do you play catch? What are you playing? You throw a baseball back and forth. What's the goal? Who's the winner? Get out of here. You're having a catch. You play games and you have a good time. And uh, when you're throwing the baseball around, you're not playing a game. You're having a good time. You're having a catch. This is something we need to fix. Trent, please get Rob Manfred on the phone. We need to fix this immediately. We got all these all-stars walking around. Trying to tell me that it's play catch. Now, if I were to ask you, Trent, baseball, football, whatever it may be, you throw something around, what do you think you would call it or what have you called it? Do you say play catch or have a catch? You know, first of all, Luke, I've never met a human in my life like you who over you, you analyze every single saying in the world. Like it's the <laughs> play it by ear, play it by year thing. I mean, you could go on. We could do a whole show on sayings that Luke right. Morrow, you know, over analyzes. I say play catch. You know, that might just be a southern thing. I, I don't know. But I guess when you every time we do this, Luke, you break it down in a way where I'm like, well, damn, he's right. Like, you know, we're, we're having a catch because we're not playing anything. If you're playing something, like you said, there's usually a winner or a loser. You could be yeah. either. Exactly. You're playing, you know, at the casino or whatever you're doing. So I guess the, the correct term is have a catch. And it does sound like, you know, a Connecticut kind of, you know, a little bit of a snooty thing to have a catch. But I do say play catch. I, I will say that. Yeah. Play. It's uh, come on. <laughs> uh, get out of here with this play. I am certainly around these parts in the minority, but I will uh, go to my deathbed telling you that it's it's the proper ways to have a catch. The way your brain works, sir, is unbelievable. Unbelievable. We need to. We're going to turn that into a segment where we analyze these expressions. I had one this morning. I was thinking about. Oh, what was it? See, folks. I mean, did you see this? Oh man, that's going to bother me now. I think it was while I was driving in, not that long ago, driving into work this morning, and thinking, wait a minute, why do we say this? That doesn't make much sense. It's going to come back to me. It's a lot of expressions that I don't understand. <laughs> and why people say play catch. You're not playing anything. You're having a catch. Get out of here. You're having a beer, right? You're sitting there having a drink. You're having a catch. You're just throwing the ball around with your kid. And feel the dreams. At least they got it right. Although I know Kevin Costner has since said he did not like 
that line in the movie. He did not want to say, have a catch. It was more from the director. But nonetheless, uh, they got it right. And that, that was the one thing they got right in that silly movie. And these all-stars, unfortunately, very uninformed about their own sport. Have a catch. Don't play catch. We'll get the trends takes when we come back. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up next hour, we'll get to all sorts of sound from SEC Media Days. A lot of hype around the Gamecocks yesterday. A lot of people talking up South Carolina for this season. Get to that, plus uh, Dabo talking about Clemson's spot in quarter in uh, college football's future. The ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips talking about the future of the ACC. we got still a lot more to get to throughout the afternoon and plenty of audio to play next hour from all the media days going on in college football. It's always a a fun week uh, uh, in the summer where you just get all these guys talking about different things in college football, and we'll react to it all later on. But we do it around this time each and every day. We find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time now for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, we got an interesting thing going on tonight. I'm a big ESPYs guy. I enjoy the ESPYs. I usually watch the ESPYs. It's fun to see all the stars in the same room. And there is a new host this year, that being the greatest shooter of all time, Stephen Curry. And I wanted to get your take, Luke, because we've had great hosts in the past. There's no doubt about it. I thought Drake was fantastic when he did his. Peyton Manning obviously crushed it. So many guys are very, very good at hosting. I'm a little concerned for Seth because he's still an active athlete. So how hard is he going to go? But I was talking about this with Bobby on Fan Talk yesterday, that Steph Curry may have reached a level in his stardom. And I mean, we talk about, you know, LeBron and Michael Fell, all, all the stars, all the goats. Steph Curry is in that conversation. So he might have enough, you know, clout per se to be able to just go down a firing squad and roast everybody. But that's my main concern is that there's not going to be enough roasting tonight at the ESPYs. It's a fair point. A lot of times we see even guys that just retire that get into broadcasting that, you know, they're talking about their friends or like John Gruden always wanted to get back into coaching, so he was never critical of anybody. Right. So it's a fair point. Curry's got to still play against these guys or play with some of them. And even though they're jokes, still not everybody takes a joke well. So it's a fair concern. I think Curry will be good, not great. I don't know. His personality to me, he's not a complete stick in the mud, but I don't think he's on the level of a Peyton Manning. I think he'll do a good job. He'll have good writers come up with things for him, but I I don't think he has as big of a personality as some other guys in the sports world or hosts. So I think he'll do a good job because I'm sure he does a good job at everything he does. Right. But I don't think he's going to like be some sort of great, hilarious got to see this monologue type of thing from Steph Curry. No, and people, I heard J.R. Smith and Amon Shumpert talking about this. People think like Steph is kind of like happy-go-lucky. You know, he's just 
they they disagree with that wholeheartedly. They said he is a hard-nosed dude. He will talk to you during the game, and uh, he'll push you around. He'll make you feel small, even though he's the smallest guy on the court. They were talking about that, and I was like, okay, he might have some fire to him when he gets on the SB stage. I'll send you that clip because it's a very interesting clip talking about him and Clay Thompson, how the outside perception of them is not true when they get on the court. Those are some hard dudes, and I love to hear that, especially with their kind of play style. Uh, Luke Mar, we are 50 days away from NFL football. This is a celebration we should be celebrating. And I was, you know, doing what I like to do, going on, you know, some sports books, looking at odds, seeing if anything changed. And I noticed some really good value for a couple teams that kind of surprised me here. Uh, to make the playoffs, the Cardinals right now are plus odds at plus 118. The Patriots are also at plus 160 to make the playoffs. And the Miami Dolphins are also at plus 140 to make the playoffs. This is very interesting to me because the Cardinals were there last year. You know they're in a wild card spot. The Patriots were in a wild card spot last year. So are the odds makers thinking that these teams are going to take a step back? Miami is obviously different because last year there was no chance they were going to get in the playoffs. And now they have, you know, a puncher's chance to do so. But does that mean that the Cardinals and the Patriots, the odds makers, think they are taking a step back this coming season? I think a lot of people think the Patriots just in general are going to take a step right. back. But, yeah, I would say so. I think all three teams bring fair concerns. I mean, the Cardinals, just the way things ended last year, both in the regular season, then the postseason embarrassment, and then the offseason – and uh, that's a that's a tough division. That's not quite as tough as a year ago. And then the AFC, the Patriots, a lot of people felt like last year it was kind of, I don't know about flukish, but somehow they pieced it together and got to the playoffs. But now you lose your offensive coordinator and they've got a mishmash uh, coaching staff. And then the Dolphins, people are hopeful, right? We have expectations for Miami, but there's two big questions just with the head coach who's never been a head coach before and if Tua can be the guy. So I understand skepticism for all three teams. In fact, tomorrow we'll do um, biggest concerns for AFC teams, then probably NFC on Friday. But all three of those teams come with some fair questions. Right. Um, I would say the Cardinals probably stand the best chance just because the NFC is so much more wide open exactly. than, the, than yeah. the, the Patriots and the Dolphins in the AFC. That's why I was surprised that they were at plus money odds, you know, to make the playoffs because I'm assuming they can win 10 games once again. They have a talented roster, but it's always, they fall apart at the end of the season. They start out like 9-1 and one every year. Yeah. Everybody starts putting in their futures for the Arizona Cardinals to win the Super Bowl, and it never works out. That's going to be interesting to see. And I do agree with you that the Patriots are probably going to take a step back, even though Mike Tannenbaum was on Get Up this morning saying Mac Jones is a sneaky MVP pick. So I'll, wow. leave, I'll leave it at that, Luke Morrow. And we got to dive into a little bit of uh, Madden, Madden ratings because obviously the wide receiver ratings were abysmal. I don't know what football they're watching, but it's not the ones that we're watching, quite honestly. The running back uh, ratings came out. Derrick Henry's number one at 97. That makes sense, right? The second guy, Christian McCaffrey, who's played 10 games in the last two seasons in the NFL, is a 96. But that's not my biggest gripe with this list because I don't think Christian McCaffrey should be second on this list, not in any stretch of the imagination. Nick Chubb is at a 96. Jonathan Taylor had arguably one of the best seasons at the running back position we've seen in the last 15 years last year is 95 behind Nick Chubb, Christian McCaffrey, and Derrick Henry. I think that's absolutely abysmal. You'll like this, though. Your guy, Dalvin Cook, is right under Jonathan Taylor at 94. But do you agree with me that Jonathan Taylor should be, you know, a 96, 97 guy? Not 99 yet. I know we're just talking video games here, folks, but it's true. Like, the, these ratings mean stuff for the players and for Madden and everything like that, I think you should be a lot higher on this list, Luke. Yeah, I agree. I would put Taylor probably, I think I would 
keep Derrick Henry first. Yes, absolutely. I do have questions about the the injury, but that's kind of there's a separate category for these Madden players of the health. Right. So maybe I would knock Derrick Henry's health down a little bit. But otherwise, yeah, I'd probably put Jonathan Taylor second uh, ahead of Chubb and McCaffrey. I'm probably biased, but, I mean, Dalvin Cook, I don't know. Maybe I'd put him a little higher. Ooh. I'll say this about McCaffrey. I mean, if he's healthy and he's McCaffrey from three years ago, he will be one of the best running backs in the league. But when ESPN.com did that polling of executives and coaches and players, they put him as number seven for best running backs this year. So right. that's what the guys in the league think about Christian McCaffrey right now. Uh, and yet for Madden, they have him still number two. So that's the, the gap or the difference between those in the league and those creating the video game. So McCaffrey, I'd probably drop and put Dalvin Cook a little higher as well. But but I do agree with you about Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, and there's also a couple guys like uh, Aaron Jones. I love Aaron Jones being an 89. I think that's a good number, but I don't really like him in between the tackles. I think he's a much better uh, out-of-the-backfield uh, pass catcher. And uh, a couple other guys like uh, Josh Jacobs, I haven't seen him do much. Zeke Elliott still being an 88 overall. It's like, what are we doing? Now, as far as defensive linemen and pass rushers go, I think it's absolutely abysmal that Miles Garrett is higher rated than T.J. Watt after this past season. I think both of them, if you're going to make both of them a 99, they should all be a 99 because T.J. Watt tied the sack record last year. He's probably the best pass rusher in the NFL. I understand looking at Miles Garrett, and he's a great player, no doubt about it. But looking at him, yeah, he's probably a you know a 99 overall. But T.J. Watt, there is no debate that he is the best pass rusher in the NFL as of right now. Yeah, I saw somebody. Is he uh, like a 96? 96. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. I saw online. I agree with you. I would put T.J. Watt like a more of a 99, top of the list. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Luke, did you see uh, potentially the Shane Beamer hype video yesterday I that did. was going around? Yes. Yeah. Good video to do. That got the uh, people talking about South Carolina at the SEC Media Day. So good on the Gamecock social media team for putting that together. It was a great production. But they were using a Soldier Boy song, which, by the way, Scott Eisenberg said he didn't know who Soldier Boy was. Crazy. Absolutely insane. Soldier Boy commented, he tweeted at the video, tagged Shane Beamer, and said, This is fire. Wow. Wow. Shane Beamer is becoming one of the most likable faces in college football. He's got the swag. He's got the moxie. He's a very nice guy. I think Shane Beamer's stock after SEC Media Days just skyrocketed, skyrocketed. He is an awesome human being, and that video was pretty dang cool, Luke Morrow. He gets it. I mean, he's young enough that he know, he knows the game. He's good on social media. He does these great videos. He has fun. Uh, just seems like a good guy, and as he said, likable. Now, I thought about this yesterday as I was watching his press conference. I was thinking, watching it, I think Beamer has become the most likable guy in the SEC. So maybe tomorrow on the show we'll have to rank coaches like you would most like to grab a beer with. Because I think Shane Beamer may be number one right now. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who did not like that hire whatsoever, and Gamecock fans were upset with me because I kept talking about it. <laughs> I did not like the move. But I admit that at least as a guy, as a person, we've had him on the show multiple times. He comes off as incredible, incredibly likable. I would love to just hang out with him. He seems like a really down-to-earth, cool guy, and he gets today's world of social. You're not going to see Nick Saban doing that. Granted, he doesn't have to, but it's just that younger generation knows social media, recruiting, how to connect with these kids. The one thing I'll say about that video, it looked like Beamer did not start moving until he got a cue. I agree. I and agree. And that is really awkward. Yeah, you have to move before the video starts. you yes. got to walk in. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Otherwise, there. it looks like it is. Obviously, it is set up, but it looks too obvious. Have him take a few steps first, and then when the video starts, he's already in motion. Boom. So it looks a little more natural. Look, look at that, Luke. We're just, you know, we're helping out Gamecock social media right. team. Uh, another quick update here. The 3M tournament is this weekend. Obviously, 3M's main investor, hate to break to everybody, is the Saudi Arabian. So that's difficult for the PGA Tour. A little, little interesting there. And 
real quick, Luke Morrow, Super Bowl odds movement for the Browns has changed significantly from plus 3,400 to plus 2,800. So I don't know what that means. I mean, we kind of know what it means, but I think the odds makers are hearing stuff that potentially Deshaun Watson may be getting a lesser suspension than a year than we're thinking as of right now. But that's that's pretty big odds movement. And the Bengals and Ravens went from plus 2,000 to plus 2,100. Mm. So that might mean that Deshaun's going to come back sometime during the season. That's what the odds makers are thinking. I just can't wait for the verdict just so we could be – because I see every day I go online and people are saying something different. Yep. I hear two to six guy. I hear eight. Just let's wait until we get the news. And can we please get the news already? What is taking so long in all this? Just Training tell us camp. how long he's going to be suspended for. Training camp's like, what, 10 days away, eight days away? I know the Raiders, their rookies reported today. Right. Rookies have to go a week ahead. So I think a lot of the rookies are showing up for different teams. Yeah, and for the Browns, it's within the next seven to ten days. Come on. What are we waiting here? Are we waiting for? But I, I do believe the latest speculation is people believe will be like eight games, not right. a full year. So that may have influenced the odds. We'll see. Eventually, at some point, they got to make this announcement. And Calvin Ridley gets suspended for a year for an eight-leg parlay. I mean, come <laughs> on, people. It was a terrible eight-leg parlay. That's why. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it was a bad bet. It was a bad bet. Well, I would say, yeah, when you want to talk about bad judgment, Deshaun obviously showed bad judgment. That's my, been my point all along. And Calvin Ridley, you sit him down and say, son, what are you doing making an eight-leg parlay? For that, you got to sit out a whole year for that terrible judgment. <laughs> it comes down to the bad judgment. My goodness. So we'll see what sort of news we get. People, by the way, that is such a sucker. And I'm guilty. I'll do a occasional not uh, not eight legs. I don't think I've ever gone probably over five. I'll do occasional parlay, but that is such a sucker bet. There's a reason why DraftKings and FanDuel advertise the same game parlay more than anything because they want you're falling right into their traps of just giving them free money. Keep it the three ga- three things, folks. Three yeah. things. That's it. If you're going to do a parlay, three things. I mean, that was probably Calvin Ridley's first time betting right, on a right, game, right. so he just picked every team and was like, put them in a parlay for like plus 2,000 odds or something. My buddy's guilty. He sends me screenshots of like during the NBA regular season, he's doing like 12 leg parlays. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> just send me that money instead. We How many of them it. hit though? That's the thing. Like very, very few. But if one hits, you're like, oh, that's I'm the, the smartest guy right. of all time. That's the thing. If you hit like 1%, you're making money because he bets small. You bet a couple bucks to right. win a couple hundred. You, you hit one of those, it's worth it if you go like one out of a hundred. But it is so hard to hit one of those parlays. Kevin really obviously learned his lesson. Uh, we'll wrap up hour two when we come back. We talked about the Stanley Cup being in the low country yesterday. Uh, another story about uh, an interesting path the Stanley Cup went on in a delivery this year. I'll get to that next. The More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up Hour 2 of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. The Stanley Cup arrived safely to North Charleston yesterday. Maybe you were lucky enough to go out there and see it up close and in person. Then they were off to Europe today to bring it elsewhere to another player of the Colorado Avalanche. There is this story. I actually saw this from a couple weeks ago, and then it jogged my memory with the Stanley Cup coming to the Low Country yesterday. But when they were in uh, Denver... Um, to bring the uh, trophy to one of the players, the guy who was here yesterday, Phil Pritchard, who travels with the Stanley Cup, they arrived at the wrong house 
This was about two to three weeks ago in, in Denver. They pull into a, a driveway. They thought it was one of the players' houses. The number of the house, the address was off by one number, but they couldn't see the number of the house very clearly, apparently. So Phil Pritchard said, we stopped there. We couldn't really see the number of the house. So I said, we'll just go up and knock on the door. What's the worst thing? They say, who are you guys? So sure enough, he went up, knocked on the door. It was not the right house. And uh, the guy walked out, and they were unloading the Stanley Cup from the trunk. And as the story goes, he jokingly said, is that the Stanley Cup? And they said, yeah, actually it is. So they were kind enough that he got to take a photo of it, he got to hold it, and then they packed it back up and they said, okay, so where's this, where's, uh, you know, 1427? And he pointed them in the right direction of where the actual Avalanche player is. But if you're a hockey fan, or even if you're just a sports fan, I would love it. If I open up my door one night and they're unloading the Stanley Cup in my driveway thinking I'm a player for the Avalanche, it'd be cool to just hold that thing, take a photo, uh, his husband was not home at the time. When he got home afterwards and heard the story, he was upset that he missed it. I think he was still at work at the time. He said, oh, you missed it. The Stanley Cup was here. That's a pretty cool story. Pretty cool thrill, especially if you're a hockey fan. Open up your front door and they're unloading the Stanley Cup in your driveway by accident. Fortunately, no issues getting it to North Charleston yesterday. And hopefully you got out there to see it. Hour three coming up next. We get to all the media day stuff. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll dive deep into Media Week throughout this hour. Plenty of audio from the SEC Media Days. We'll get to Clemson as well and the ACC as they kicked off their Media Day today. We'll hear from Dabo about Clemson's future in college football. How long should the leash be on DJ? We'll get to that later on. And a lot of hype around the Gamecocks. In Atlanta yesterday. Get to that as well. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. While you're there, you can always leave a comment for the show as well. charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. On the text line, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversations on the phone as well, 843-721-9500. Tomorrow on the show, we'll continue our preview of Power 5 conferences. We'll break down the Big Ten tomorrow, the SEC on Friday. But we'll also preview the NFL. I'll give you my biggest concern for every AFC team tomorrow, every NFC team on Friday. And now, after a conversation last hour, I think we're going to have to do likability rankings in the SEC as well in the show tomorrow because Shane Beamer is moving high up on that list, maybe to the top spot. We'll hear from Shane in just a moment. The other thing we are probably going to do on the show tomorrow, certainly this week, there's this new trend. I'm not really into social media trends, but this one I like. There are different filters on, like, I guess it's Instagram. I don't know. I don't use Instagram. But I see the videos posted on other social media where – 
it has like a question above your head, but it, it, it goes through a bunch of different options, and then like the question will pop up, or like a celebrity, whatever it may be. Right, yeah. There's like a football one now where you have to draft a team, mm. and you have to pick one player from each team that pops up randomly. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen You've this. Seen it's, that? A, it's a big, yeah, that's a TikTok trend. Yeah, TikTok, no doubt, okay. No doubt. Well, we're going to do that tomorrow, yes. but a little bit different, of course. I found a website that does a random team generator. And we'll do that. We'll draft an offense, and then I think you have to pick a defense as well. But you draft different offensive positions. You draft a quarterback. And so just to give you an example, if you're confused what I'm talking about, the Buffalo Bills will pop up, and you have to take. You have to either draft a running back, wide receiver, tight end, quarterback, offensive line, or defense from that team. Then you go to another team, and you pick one of those positions from that team, so on and so forth. And whoever, we'll see who puts together, kind of randomly, but who puts together a better team, Trent or myself. We'll probably do that tomorrow. But I saw that trend floating around, people posting their videos, and I thought, I like this one. We're going to steal this and use it on the show. Yeah, it's a big, big TikTok trend for the sports people on yeah. TikTok. They love doing that. They're trying to build the 16 and or 17-0 and 0 team. That's, that's the big yes, trend. Yes, right. Yeah. That's what it is. Yep. So we'll see how we do. Well, we'll probably do that tomorrow. Either tomorrow or Friday. Some point this week. So we got a lot to do as we continue to look ahead to the football season, which uh, for the NFL is 50 days away. College football even sooner. Right around the corner. And this is always a great week in the summer as you're looking forward to the football season because everywhere you look, people are just talking football. Coaches are talking about everything with these media days. Then fans are responding. You know, I'll um, to take you behind the curtain a little bit, if we talk about, like, the industry, there are kind of two methods. I mean, there are more than two. But you could have, like, say, your Colin Coward who comes up with his own opinions in a creative fashion. Or you have more like a Dan Patrick who does a lot of reacting. You'll play some audio. You'll talk about something somebody said, and you'll react to that storyline. Those aren't the only school of thoughts in this industry, but those are kind of two ways to do it. Here on the Morrow Midday Show, I think we kind of do a combination. We do a little bit of both. But I say all that because this hour, we're going to do a lot of reacting. We've got a lot of audio to get through, and I'll give you my thoughts from each of these pieces. But throughout this hour, we're going to hear from a lot of people in the SEC and also Dabo and the ACC commissioner as well. So let's just unload the notebook here from SEC Media Days over the last 24 hours. Let's start with Shane Beamer. We have uh, two separate uh, cutaways from Beamer's press conference yesterday. I'll be honest with you. I jotted all these down. I don't really know what a lot of them are actually about until I hear them again. I have to refresh my memory because we have so many uh, audio clips in the system. So how's that How's that for a lead-in? Let's just hear a little bit of what Shane Beamer had to say yesterday as part of SEC Media Days. Really like this 2022 group that we have. I love being their coach. I love coaching this team. Uh, the work ethic, the maturity, the hunger to improve has been evident since January when we came back after the bowl win. We made great strides last season going from two wins to seven wins. And a challenge for us is making sure our guys understand that going from seven to the next step, the next level, is going to take even more work. And everything that I've seen from our guys since they came back uh, shows me that, that, that they understand understand that. Last year I stood up here and there wasn't a single person in here that was talking about South Carolina football other than maybe our beat writers. Uh, no one was talking about any of the individuals on our football team across the country last year. I think the most noise we made at SEC Media Days last year was when we reenacted the Coach Spurrier Arby's picture on the way back to the airport. But there was very little talk about our football team. That's different this year. 
People are talking about us nationally, which is what we want. We have high expectations at South Carolina. People are talking about our players as individuals more nationally than what they were last year. There's more buzz about this program right now. And the key for us, the challenge for us, will be being mature enough to handle that the right way as a football team and uh, understand the work ethic that it's going to take to get back to what we uh, did last season and understanding that the reason that we had a lot of success that we did last year was how close or how connected we became as a team. Shane Beamer yesterday. A couple of takeaways from that. I agree with really everything. I think he makes some good points, but I would also say if the team's already, as he said, right, we got to continue to work hard. We haven't done anything yet. If you're already getting big heads based off of just going to the Duke's Mayo Bowl last year and because of some publicity this offseason, that's a problem. South Carolina obviously has not accomplished anything yet under Shane Beamer or really in quite a few years, really since Steve Spurrier. So you want to guard against you know, reading your own press clippings and getting a little too big for your britches, but and also you should be able to stay humble in the fact that, you know, last year you were 6-6 six and six in the regular season, and uh, this year no one's expecting you to actually go compete for the top of the division in the SEC. By the way, Steve Spurrier, best coach the Gamecocks have had in a long time, uh, he went to Arby's. Enough said. Arby's is the most underrated fast food chain around. In fact, it's Wednesday. I think I hear rain. Hopefully the rain goes away. I can play pickup basketball, and then I can get myself some Arby's later. That's always the reward. Um, but in terms of the Gamecocks, Beamer's absolutely right about just the feeling around the program. And there's not only a lot more attention being paid and optimism towards the Gamecocks, but I think there is a reason why, because of what they did last year in year one. And mostly because you brought in Spencer Rattler. They could have been 2-8 and eight last year or 2-10, and 10, whatever. Uh, you bring in a quarterback like Spencer Rattler, that's reason for optimism. But if they went 7-6 and six last year and you didn't get Spencer Rattler, I don't think we're looking at the Gamecocks program the same as we are right now. I think almost it's, it's not even about the results last year. That's largely irrelevant. It's just because you have a realistic uh, option at the quarterback position, which you did not have last year, and on paper you've never had for the Gamecocks, a quarterback of that stature. Quarterbacks, are, they're that important. When you don't have the quarterback, you don't have much hope. When you do have the quarterback, look, the Gamecocks have a lot of holes in that roster. It doesn't matter. If Spencer Rattler plays well enough, he'll cover up a lot of those holes. When you do have the quarterback... You have hope every year. You look at the Green Bay Packers. As a Vikings fan, it drives me nuts. The Packers have never had the most talented team in that division. But they have the best quarterback. So every year, they're going to win the division. They're going to be a playoff team, and Packers fans can count on it. When you have the quarterback, you got everything. Now, is Spencer Rattler really going to be that guy? Is he going to meet your expectations? To be determined, but you have plenty of reason to be optimistic right now. And if you're an optimistic Gamecock fan, you would say, hey, 7-6 and six last year. We had to use four different quarterbacks. Now we get Spencer Rattler, the most talented quarterback we've had. Right, we should be better than 7-6. and six. And I would tell you, yeah, that you should improve by at least one win. But the pessimistic Gamecock fan, and we have one of both in this building, we have a very optimistic Gamecock fan, we have a more negative Gamecock fan in this building. But the one that's maybe more negative looks at the glass half empty, says, yeah, Gamecocks went 7-6 and six last year, but what was the best win? Because when they went up against Clemson, they lost by 30. When they went up against Texas A&M, they lost by 30. When they went up against Georgia, they lost by 27. And the best wins at the end of the year came against UNC, who was very underwhelming, Auburn, who wanted to fire their coach, and Florida, who did fire their coach. So there's reasons to be optimistic, but there's also a couple of reasons to be a little skeptical as well of what you're really getting into based off of how last season ended. Here's clip number two from Shane Beamer. I, I believe this is about his quarterback, Spencer Rattler, who, uh, as I said, is the, uh, probably the reason why a lot of people are optimistic about this Gamecock team. Here was Beamer yesterday. I don't know if there's pressure. Um, you know, I, I would say this, Brad, like people forget 
Spencer Rattler is the starting quarterback at Oklahoma. He had some pretty good, pretty high amount of pressure replacing a guy by the name of Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Jalen Hurts. And then what does he do in his first two conference games at Oklahoma as the starting quarterback? We, not him, we lose to Kansas State at home. Then we lose to Iowa State on the road. So he's replacing all these guys, had a lot of pressure going into that season, started out 0-2 in the conference, never flinched. And then the narrative I know was he got uh, benched last year in the Texas game. Well, he got sat down the year before, too, and then came back in the second half, played his butt off. We beat Texas in four overtimes, and he never lost the game as a starting quarterback again and still hasn't as a starting quarterback. So I don't worry about Spencer. There may be some outside pressure with him. He's been through the fire before. I saw firsthand how he handled it uh, when he was at Oklahoma and started out 0-2, never flinched, and, and uh, continued to get better. There'll be some ups. There'll certainly be some downs, I'm sure, this season, but have no, no worries about him uh, from that standpoint being able to handle it. And with Spencer, we've got to be great around Spencer players and coaches uh, and play well and help him and then with Spencer nobody's asking him to go out there and be Superman just go go be you and uh and confident that he will I don't want to say there's no pressure on Spencer rather because that's inaccurate but I do think expectations are what bring pressure about and the expectations for Spencer Rattler are much greater at Oklahoma than they are South Carolina. Now, a lot of Gamecock fans may view Rattler as kind of like the savior, so that's where the pressure would come in, and obviously he wants to play well and turn himself back into an NFL quarterback, of course. But before, the talk was number one quarterback in the country. He's going to be a Heisman winner. He's going to lead Oklahoma to the playoff. He's going to be the number one pick in the draft. Those are lofty expectations to live up to. Those conversations are not being had now. Now it's like, hey, let's just win eight games. Maybe he's an all-conference quarterback for the first time in Gamecock history. You know, the bar isn't as high as it was at Oklahoma. There's still going to be pressure. There always is. You're a starting quarterback in the SEC, and he wants to go play in the NFL. But I do agree that, you know, the idea that uh, he doesn't know what he's stepping into or something like that, he's dealt with, I would say, greater pressure already. This is going to feel like taking a load off. It's going to be like when you transfer schools and have a chance to recreate yourself after things didn't go so well at the last school. Nobody knows who you are. Obviously, a little bit different here. We all know about Spencer Rattler and his history. But he's not Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud at the forefront of the sport. He's in the next second or third tier of quarterbacks where the expectations just aren't as high. My biggest concern for him, though, not necessarily pressure or anything, but it's just that you go from Oklahoma to you go to South Carolina. Less talent around you, not as good of an offensive coach you're uh, playing for, tougher conference. Right? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit different. Not in Kansas anymore. Here was Tim Tebow. Tebow very high in the Gamecocks. Now, I do think Tebow's a very positive person. I don't know if I've ever heard him say anything negative. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. But the first clip of Tebow, I believe, is just uh, talking about, you know, kind of high expectations for Beamer's crew this year. Here was Tim Tebow yesterday. I'm excited for tomorrow because... I, I love what Coach Beamer is doing at South Carolina. I agree. I love his excitement. I love his ability to recruit. I love his ability to, to lure over Spencer Rattler. Like, mm. that's a huge win. And I, I think if he gets enough time, I think he's going to do some special things at South Carolina because what he did in year one with that talent was incredible. I think he has got such a um, contagious personality that these young players want to play for him. And in a, in a unique day and age where everything is changing and you need a good draw, he is a draw, right? Players want to go play for him. I think he's going to do a really good job up on stage. Absolutely. It goes back to what we were saying. He's very likable. 
And maybe it's because he's the son of a coach. He knows how to handle the media and play the game and everything. He knows what goes into it. He's been through it before, a longtime assistant coach. But it's going to lead us to our likability rankings tomorrow. Beamer may be number one in the conference. I'd have to think about it. But he's moving up the charts. He does a good job at the podium. He does a good job on social media. He's just a nice guy. People that uh, deal with him like him. And that helps. Right now, if you don't win enough games on Saturday, it doesn't matter. But, of course, you got to be, you know, kids have to want to go play for you, and you have to build that culture that guys want to be a part of. And whether it's through TikTok or press conferences, he certainly brings good attention to the Gamecocks. Here was Tebow talking about the new quarterback, Spencer Rattler. And uh, Tebow's pretty high on the Gamecocks' new starting quarterback this year. This is super uh, underrated. Spencer Rattler, super talented, very accurate, very poised. Will he have a, a good enough offensive line, a, a good enough receiving core? You know, but I mean, what a talented kid. He was one of the top quarterbacks coming out. I really like his game. I think when he plays confident, he plays elite. And if he can get, build that confidence, then he will. Uh, he trans. I have, we had a cut. He transitioned into head and head and hooker for some reason. I don't know. It was kind of a weird ending to the clip. But Tim Tebow's high on Spencer Rattler. Now, he touched on what I mentioned in my biggest concern. The talent around you is not going to be as good. It's not going to be Lincoln Riley's offense, and the defenses are going to be a lot better in the SEC. But Rattler on paper certainly has the skill set to be a big-time quarterback. Here was uh, Takeo Spikes, who I believe just uh, signed down with the SEC Network. He played at Auburn, obviously a long time in the NFL. He, too, is high on the Gamecocks. In fact, he has South Carolina pulling off a big upset very early on in the season, here was Spikes yesterday at SEC Media Days. I am completely sick of the disrespect that they're putting on Spentler's Let's Rattler. Let's go. I'm telling you. And I didn't you. even play quarterback. Tell but let me tell you why, though, because it's so much the element of surprise. We talk about how can a defense prepare for a quarterback that they haven't seen. And that's what Spentler Rattler is going to bring to the table. Defenses can't really say, I know what you do until I get three to four games on the book. When you look at them, they come out and they play Georgia State, then Arkansas. Of course, of course, Arkansas is going to be hard. But I really got this team upset in Georgia at home oh. in Columbia. Make sure you're close. I need to have your number is on speed reason, dial Is there a reason why you're pointing at me? Interesting. Interesting thought by Takeo Spikes that early on in the season will actually be better off for the Gamecocks. See, I had the opposite thought. That if you're Spencer Rattler, you're jumping right into the fire. Georgia State week one, that does nothing. That's a that's a scrimmage. But then you go to Arkansas and then Georgia weeks two and three. So right away, your first real games with the Gamecocks, let's look past Georgia State. You go to Arkansas, is going to be really good this year, and then you get Georgia even though it's at home. It's baptism by fire in the SEC for Spencer Rattler. That'd be more of a concern for me. Can you ease it? Can we get Vanderbilt first? Can we get a few more non-conference games first? Could you play Charlotte before those? Spencer Rattler's going to be playing in, you know, with a bunch of new teammates in the SEC for the first time, and you have to start off at Arkansas and then Georgia. But Takeo Spikes believes maybe it's to their advantage because the other teams don't really know what to expect. I will say we have plenty of tape on Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma, now different place, maybe a different offense, different players. But it's not a complete surprise. It's not like Lamar Jackson's coming out there for the first time and he's going to be running all over you. You know what you're going to get with Spencer Rattler. I think that's the most interesting stretch, though, of the Gamecock schedule, and it comes right away. What do they look like immediately? Going to Arkansas and then Georgia, that's quite the test. Now, over the past 12 years, Florida has beaten Georgia five times. The Gamecocks have beaten Georgia five times. Everybody else in the division, in total, have beaten Georgia five times. So South Carolina's done the best job against Georgia over the past 12 years. They're at home this year against Georgia. That defense lost a lot of pieces. Maybe they could pull off that upset against Georgia 
at home. But that'll be an interesting stretch early on for the Gamecocks with their new quarterback to jump right into SEC play. Let's step away from the Gamecocks. Nick Saban, of course, made the rounds yesterday. Every time he opens his mouth, it's a a big deal. Uh, Two different clips from Saban. Uh, One of these is about Jimbo Fisher. That may be the next one. Uh, Let's just hear from Nick Saban what he had to say yesterday at Media Days. I I think the game's about the players. You know, Jimbo and I, I mean, I wish you had some of the arguments we had in the staff room. (laughs) I I, I also heard on the basketball court as well. On the basketball court, too. But this wouldn't have to be public. But the way I look at it is, you know, when people make comments about Nick Saban, uh, I listen. Uh, I try to learn. I try to make improvements in my own self by self-assessing in terms of what can I do to get better. You know, Miss Terry used to kill me when I first became a head coach about I did a terrible job with the media. And I said, you're crazy. I'm, I'm okay. She <laughs> yeah. says, you're anxious, you're nervous, you're hurt. said, that's why they kill you. So I looked at it. She was right. I tried to change, and hopefully I'll do a little better now than I used to. He knows what he's doing. Saban's very good. He's good with the media. Uh, he could get a little snippy, right? He'll get a little short. But overall, he does a pretty good job. And I relate it back to Beamer. That is incredibly important nowadays, especially with social media and how accessible these guys are and how often they talk to the media and the clips travel so quickly. If you do a good job in the media, uh, that's huge. You come off as being very likable. Guys want to come play for you. The media will like covering you. They'll look at you in a better light than if you give them a hard time all the time. You could use the media as a tool as opposed to trying to battle them like they're an enemy all the time. Some coaches don't understand that. Look, I get it. I wouldn't want to do a press conference either. But if you're smart enough, manipulate too hard of a too harsh of a word but you can use the media you know almost have them in your pocket as opposed to getting up there and trying to battle with them all the time thinking you know you're so much smarter than them maybe you are but you know use them to your advantage beamer does that really well and i think mostly saban does a really good job with that i think saban's really good i mean he's been doing it for so many years i think he's really good though talking about the game and dealing with the media but what he said off the top about that game's about the players yeah sure but you know we're all going to be talking about Jimbo against Saban and try to look for how those two are going to act with one another on the field October 8th. You can try to deflect, tell me it's all about the players. We know we're going to be paying closer attention to the coaches. Here is another clip from Saban. I think this was about the uh, the future of the game. I really should have jotted down more notes. Uh, here was Saban yesterday talking at media days. I think that, you know, mega conferences may be something that, you know, we all have to deal with in the future. Uh, I think, you know, probably... You know, money probably drives a lot of this. I can't blame people for that. Uh, it's sort of above my pay grade, though, to know, you know, what we should do as a league in the SEC or what any other league should do. But uh, I think as we progress forward, the, the mega conference, you know, will create, you know, a little more of a cast system maybe in college football. And I think everybody's got to decide if that's the direction we really want to go or not. Well, I think probably for the haves, which obviously at Alabama we're one of the haves, uh, it's probably a good thing. Uh, for some of the have-nots, uh, some of the, you know, sort of, I don't want to know what you would say, second half of each league, you know, maybe it won't work out as well. Uh, maybe there's some system like, you know, the pro soccer league in Europe uh, where you can, you know, play your way into it. I don't know how it all works out. Uh, I know that one thing that we've always tried to do is keep competitive balance in college athletics, um, and I think this could affect that, you know, significantly for, you know, some people in college football. Yeah, it certainly will. It's going to drive a bigger gap between, as he said, the haves and the have-nots. It's going to make it even tougher on the teams that are not somebody like in Alabama. 
He can always he keeps going back to this competitive balance. I just complimented Saban, but I have to say that's a bunch of uh, nonsense. We've never had competitive balance in college football. The rules are not designed for it like the NFL. But he is right at what he first said, where mega conferences, yeah, they are here to stay. That's not earth-shattering news. And as he said, this is all driven by money, and uh, I can't blame that is what he said, which I would relate back to live golf, giving all these golfers a hard time. As Saban said, right, it's all about money, and I can't really blame him for that. Unfortunately, that's what drives our world is going after that money. That's what's driving all these moves in college football as well, just like the golfers leaving the PGA Tour. It's just about money. Most people make decisions based off of money. couple last ones. People will pay more attention to Nick Saban. Around here, you pay more attention to the Gamecocks. Let's give a little love to the other coaches. Here was Clark Lee, head coach of Vanderbilt. Apparently, he delivered a 25-minute opening remarks uh, to his press conference, like people are that interested in Vanderbilt. But here's a little portion of what Clark Lee said where um, he's very high on the future of Vanderbilt football. We know that in time, Vanderbilt football will be the best program in the country. As I stated a year ago, there are no cheat codes, no shortcuts, no hacks that will allow this to happen overnight. This is still about going the long, hard way, independent of the trends and the headlines generating the most attention right now in college football. Look, I love the enthusiasm, but I mean, what are we doing here? He said in time. How much time are we talking about? Like 100 years from now, Vanderbilt will finally be one of the best teams in college football? Or the best, I think he said? And I say this all the time about coaches. You do not have to get up there and make these big declarations and promises to inspire your fan base. Will Muschamp would always do this. We have the best team we've ever had here. Okay, well, then you better have the best record now. And then when they didn't, when the Gamecocks would struggle, you throw it back in his face like, hey, I thought you said this is the most talented team. Dabo is infamous. Talking about these quarter, right? Best quarter. He throws the best football I've ever seen. All right, then how come DJ had more interceptions than touchdowns this year? You don't need to make these big proclamations that Vanderbilt is going to be the best team in football in the near future, or however long he's talking about, ever. It's never going to happen unless there's a huge change in college football where everything gets turned on its head. You know, Vanderbilt, number one, of course, it's the academics that works against them. Number two, they're in the SEC. Good luck competing with the other schools. But number three, when we talk about these powerhouses in Alabama, they love their football in Tuscaloosa. And that's all. It's a college town. Uh, Even here in South Carolina, we don't have a professional team. You love your college football, rightfully so. And in Clemson, right, everyone's all about Clemson. Columbia, you're all about the Gamecocks. Here, you're about both, yada, yada, yada. Nashville, a little bit different. They love football there, no doubt, but you have the Titans. You have a lot of other things. You got country music. You have a lot of bars you go to. They just don't have that same support where, like, you want to talk NIL and stack up the money. I'm sure Vanderbilt's getting a lot less money poured into their program than some of these other schools where it's more life or death. Vanderbilt, eh, it's a good academic school. The alumni's not as into sports. They've never been good. They don't have a tradition of it. There's a lot more going on in that. It's not like a little college town that they live and die by what Vanderbilt does on Saturday, and that works against them as well. You know, it's kind of like Stanford. Stanford had a couple good years there at Harbaugh. They've had some good years in the past, but they're about academics. There's a lot more going on in California, and it's not some little college town that uh, you live and die by what Stanford does on that weekend. Your whole weekend's planned around it. It's hard for them to try to catch up to a USC in Oregon and stay there consistently in the Big tw- uh, the Pac-12. And then lastly, here's Mike Leach, who uh, he's the opposite of Clark Lee. He does not like opening statements. He never gives one and uh, never really talks about football either. Talks about whatever else is on his mind, which I appreciate because we oftentimes get sidetracked here on the More Midday Show with all sorts of other things as well. Here is Mike Leach talking about Netflix recommendations. Here's the coach of Mississippi State. I wish I could tell you I'd, I'd watch more Netflix. I haven't watched a lot lately. 
And uh, during the season, it's good to watch, uh, you know, to kind of get your head straight. But I did, <clears throat> I'm up to date on Better Call Saul. I'm up to date on Yellowstone. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I'll tell you, that's part of it. The, the kids got me into Stranger Things, and <clears throat> I'm certainly not ready for this season. I'm about halfway through. Um, and uh, I don't know. <clears throat> so if you guys have any good recommendations, I could probably use them. Um, and so I, I guess I'll defer to the numbers here. I, he probably doesn't give opening statements because he's has to clear his throat the whole time. Does anybody clear their throat more than Mike Leach? My goodness. Got a lozenge. Uh, his lineup, though, on Netflix, Better Call Saul, Yellowstone, and Stranger Things. That's a pretty good one, two, three punch right there. Now, I don't know. Is Yellowstone even on Netflix? We use Netflix now as a term that if you talk any streaming, it's just Netflix. Like, what are you watching on Netflix? And you'll say something on like Paramount Plus and another thing on Disney. It doesn't matter. Like when you say Netflix, they're really kind of the originators. We're just talking all streaming. Yellowstone is on Paramount, uh, oh, I believe. Paramount Plus. Perfect. I'll have to check that out. I have always wanted to watch that. Better Call Saul, Yellowstone, Stranger Things. That's a good lineup. Now, if you had run one recommendation for Mike Leach or for anybody, What's the what's a show or two that immediately pops to mind that you tell all your buddies that like, you got to watch this show? It is one of the best on streaming. The best one-two punch in the game on Netflix, that being Peaky Blinders 1, Ozark number 2. You okay. have to watch those two shows. Luke, I tell you, basically every single week, you need to start watching Peaky Blinders. we got the football season. Okay, you're about to get busy, Luke. We might yeah, need to true. binge a couple. Yeah. You know, you know, get get into Peaky, but I, my, Mike Leach would love Peaky Blinders. There's no doubt. I would have told him right then and there. Peaky <laughs> Blinders, you get after it. Mike, you let me know. Absolutely. And then you'll see why Mississippi State goes like four and eight this year because <laughs> Leach is too busy binging. He gets caught up. I got to watch another episode. Oh, I got this game film to watch. But wait a minute, Peaky Blinders is getting really good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say Ozark's definitely my number one, and it's the thing I say to everybody. Like if they're looking for a show, have you seen Ozark yet? And most people have by now. One of my brothers is just finally going through it. Ooh, because he's one of those. He waits until the show finishes and then he could binge the whole thing. Oh, okay. He Smart. doesn't want to do a season. Yeah, well, he's got more patience than me. <laughs> so he's just starting to watch Ozark for the first time now. The show came out like five years ago. I could not wait five years to watch a show I'm interested in. He he has more discipline than I do. Does he like it? He likes it, mm. but not as much as I. I probably built up the expectations to be too high. <laughs> he said, you know, it's good. It's it's not. I say I call it the best. It is my favorite non-comedy show I think I've ever watched. Uh, he would not say the same. And I think he's into season three right now. I think it's a top five, I think, for a majority of people, like as far as series goes. His big thing was he just doesn't find the characters likable enough, which is huge. You hmm. got to have a rooting interest. And the characters are all terrible. This is not a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the show. But for some reason... I'm always going to root for Jason Bateman. I could do without his wife, Laura Linney. I don't really care what happens to her. And Ruth as well. Ugh. I'm always going to root for Ruth. She's uh, There's something about her. I don't know. She's She is, I think she's likable. Julia Garner. Yeah, that, oh, that's a fantastic her actress. Unbelievable. So, yeah, they're all, they're deplorable. They're terrible people, but I, you still have some sort of interest in them, which I guess is the same thing like uh, Breaking Bad, right? They're like all terrible, mm -hmm. but you still root for a happy ending for them. Well, my brother doesn't have that same connection, I guess. Anyways, go watch Ozark. Hopefully Mike Leach has seen it by now. There's all our sound from the SEC Media Days. When we come back, we head over to the ACC. What's Clemson's future in college football with the way things are moving right now? It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
Coming up, where does Clemson fit into the future of college football? It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Just ran through all sorts of sound from SEC Media Days. Clemson held their own media days. You know, the SEC, they have to take out a whole week because that's how big of a deal they are. Well, Clemson in the ACC is kind of like a quasi-SEC school in another conference. And ACC media days, that's not big enough for them. They have their own media days before. So they had their media day yesterday. Then the ACC media days begin today. So plenty of Dabo. Um, Dabo was talking yesterday. We'll get to some of the sound from Dabo, including when he was talking about, you know, the shape of college football right now, the future of college football and uh, Clemson's position in it all. Here's a little bit of what Dabo said yesterday about uh, everything going on in college football. I think most people know where college football is heading. Uh, it's just a matter of when. Is it next week? Is it five years from now? Is it three years from now? I, I don't really know, but I think most people could probably, uh, that were really a part of this game, can agree that, you know, ultimately there's going to be a, a restructuring of college football. Uh, there's going to be a new governance structure at some point. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Uh, you know, and you know where you are, where we are right now. It's kind of like you know we we've kind of rounded second base, and there's a line drive, and everybody's kind of holding halfway to see if it got through, right? And uh, you know, we'll either get on home or, or or go back to second. Dabo yesterday. I do like that analogy, and you know we like that type of stuff around here. But, yeah, that base runner that's kind of caught up in between, and he doesn't know, is he going to be able to score on this or is the ball going to be caught? It's one of those 50-50 balls, and is he going to have to head back for Clemson or for all these teams? What does the future hold? Are you heading to the SEC, or do you just go back to the ACC where you started? We have to wait and see. And it's why I've said throughout this whole process that I think you have more anxiety right now if you're in the ACC than the Pac-12 or the Big 12. The Pac-12 and the Big 12, they've been delivered the death, the death blows. The ACC doesn't know when it may come, who it's going to affect, what their future may hold, what's the plan B would be. What's going to happen with Clemson? What's going to happen with Miami? We have no idea. We'll see. Maybe nothing anytime soon because of that TV deal. Dabo also said, uh, I have the, uh, we don't have the audio, but I have the quotes here. He said, no matter what happens, whether the ACC goes to 52 teams or moves to a new Megatron World Conference, I don't really know, but people have never come to Clemson because of the league that we're in, honestly. People come to Clemson because we're Clemson. He continued and said, I spent 13 years at Alabama. I never recruited anyone at Alabama that came because we were in the SEC. They came because we were in Alabama. And they've come to Clemson in my 19 years, going on 20, because we're Clemson. He also would say, this is Clemson. 10 years from now, it will be Clemson. 20 years from now, this will be Clemson. Long after I'm gone from here, this is Clemson. So that I know. People are coming and have come from all over the country to come to Clemson. This is a special place. This is one of those very, very special places in the country that is passionate about football. So, yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, regardless of what happens in the landscape of college football, when it's all said and done in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, Clemson is going to be Clemson. I don't know, with all that said, what Clemson's position would be, though, in the future of college football. Are they a school that could get left behind? I think... A couple of things. Number one, maybe when he was at Alabama over 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. Today, I do think that people do choose certain schools in the SEC because they want to be in that conference. It's the conference that uh, leads to the most national championships. It's the conference that gets you the most eyeballs. It's the conference with the best competition. It's the conference that theoretically has the best coaching, at least with one of the teams. It's the conference that um, 
also puts the most guys in the NFL. I mean, they check off all of the boxes. So I do think that plays a role nowadays. Maybe it didn't in the 90s into the 2000s. I do think it does now. And you see more guys coming from all over, same with at Clemson, but than ever before, recruits from all over the country going to the SEC or in Alabama. And also, yes, they deserve credit, right, going to Clemson. They do very well out in California. They get kids from Texas. They get kids from the Northeast, all over the place because they've been that good. I think the big thing with Clemson is just simply winning. We all love a winner. But if you stop winning, if you stop competing for national championships, because Clemson does not have the longstanding history and tradition of, say, a Miami, where Miami hasn't won anything in 20 years, we still talk about them like they're one of the most important schools in the country. Same with Texas. Texas hasn't competed for a championship in 15 years. But every offseason, what's the storyline? Is Texas back? We're hoping for it. We're waiting for it. We're looking for it. I don't think Clemson has that same, same brand power, that if the winning went away tomorrow, five years from now, when they're no longer dominating the ACC, I don't think we're – is Clemson coming back? When are they going to be back? we got to get somebody there to resurrect that program. I don't think they have that same cachet. So I think it's about winning. And I look back at, like, a Nebraska. If you talk to Nebraska folks in the 90s, they probably would have said a lot of the same things. Like, hey, 20 years from now, Nebraska's going to be Nebraska. You can't have college football without Nebraska. We're one of the best teams in the country. But over the past 20 years, right, the winning stopped. They no longer compete for national championships. They also did change conferences. Hasn't gone great. Uh, and it's been a different story for them. Florida State, it's happened a lot quicker. Right, go back to just Jimbo Fisher after Bobby Bowden a decade ago. Now Florida State, they still have enough history where they're a big enough brand. But like today, Florida State, do you think the SEC is dying to get Florida State right now? I don't think they care. They already have the state of Florida. I think I'd rather have Miami than Florida State right now. You know, once you stop winning, people stop caring so much. And there's countless schools like that over the years. They had a couple of good years. They won a national championship or two. But when you can't keep the winning up uh, consistently, it doesn't take long for people to kind of forget about you. We just love winners, unless you're in the SEC or maybe the Big Ten. But if you're outside of those two conferences these days, and as we we continue to move closer to these power conferences, if you're somewhere else, it's probably going to take winning. I, could, I think you could even say a lot about Oregon as well, with Chip Kelly and that offense, and they were winning big time, and they had Heisman winners and everything. But in recent years, I don't think they're on the forefront. The Big Ten chose UCLA and USC, and everyone's kind of forgotten about Oregon right now, and they're kind of like that free agent just hanging out there in the Pac-12 wondering if anyone's going to scoop them up. You're not winning, and you don't have that rich, baked-in history, or you're in the SEC, I think you can kind of be passed by. Is that going to happen with Clemson? I have no idea. If they keep competing at the highest level, no, it wouldn't. But if you tell me their days of winning national championships are behind them, then I would be concerned about 10 years from now, how do we look at that program in the big landscape of college football? If they keep competing like they have been under Dabo, yeah, they'll be just everyone, of course. You want them because they're a winner, and they get big-time recruits. But I go back to Nebraska, right? Their recruiting has faltered. Florida State as well. When you stop winning, things dry up a little bit. It's like that friend that just is popular because he has a lot of money, and then he loses all that money, and he realizes, actually, those weren't truly friends of mine. Right? My circle is not as big as I thought it was. People are not coming around anymore. They're not hanging around with me. Here is uh, the commissioner of the ACC, Jim Phillips, today at ACC Media Days, talking again about the future of college football and where the ACC fits into all this. Here's the ACC commissioner. Will also strongly advocate for college athletics to be a healthy neighborhood, not a two or three gated 
communities. Resources may be different, but access, education, and competitive opportunity will remain the foundation going forward. How concerned are you that the uh, growing revenue chasm could, could kind of turn the Power Five into a Power Two with, with the, the Big Ten and the SEC way ahead revenue-wise of, of the ACC? And, and is, is expansion the, the, the only real solution uh, to uh, cutting that down? I don't know that it's the only solution. I think you have to look creatively. We've been doing that over the last year. We're going to continue to do that. All neighborhoods need to be healthy. It's not good for college athletics if we're not. And again, you, you heard my reference earlier. We understand where those two leagues are. No one's ignoring that. And we're all trying to find ways to close that gap. So I, I know where our 17, you know, or our 15 schools are. We are really aligned to try to find some solutions to that revenue gap. But it can't be at the expense of all the other things that we're doing. And, uh, and so there's, a, there's a, I think, a really good, good plan for us as we move ahead. Again, considering all of our options. And in these kinds of times, you have to do that. This is unique, what's happened over the last 12 months. No indication of what that plan may be. And also not very inspiring there from Jim Phillips in that clip. As he said, too, about the gated communities and any more than two, it's almost like uh, instead of coming up with an idea to help save the ACC, it's putting the onus or the blame on the power conferences, making those moves, leaving the ACC potentially behind in the dust. Let me transition to this. How long should that leash be for DJ this year in Clemson? Let's go back to Dabo and some of the comments he made yesterday. Um, first, in regards to... Um, Let's do the DJ one. Well, his comments, Dabo's comments on his quarterback this year. Here's what he had to say about DJ yesterday. He looks great. He's stronger. He's faster. Uh, he's probably, I don't know, 25 to 30 pounds uh, different. Uh, and uh, just feels great. And then I think also just mentally, he's just a different person than he was this time last year because of what he's been through. You know, I mean, he went through a lot. Uh, obviously, uh, we had a lot of challenges around him and, and, a, and a kind of a perfect storm type of a year from an injury standpoint offensively. And, uh, and you know, he kind of lost his confidence and he didn't play as well at times as, as he needed to. And again, not a lot of continuity around him to go with it. Uh, but watching him go through that and never make an excuse and never point a finger, uh, I think it just fortified him as, as an unbelievable leader on this team. That was Dabo on his quarterback. Here's Dabo on his defense this year, which, of course, I mean, the defense was so good last year. A good defense could be a quarterback's good friend. Here's Dabo on what to expect from their defense this year. You know, I, I think this group has elite talent, um, and I think we've got great depth and athleticism, uh, but I do think we're a fast group. I mean, we, we, we've got guys up front that can really run. Uh, this is probably the fastest group of linebackers that maybe we've had uh, in, a, in a while. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a really fast group. And then we got corners that can run. Uh, all those safeties can cover some ground. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, we'd have to line them all up and, and, and test it out to, to say, you know, really compare them. But just on paper, 
know, speed and athleticism. This is a this is certainly an elite group just in those two aspects. Um, but the functionality, the, the football IQs, the the game experience, you know, uh, the depth of that, I think makes this group, you know, have a real chance to be special. Yeah, I'm sure the defense will be really good. The bigger question is probably just the loss of Venables than anything actually going on on the field. The defensive line will be one of the best in the country. But last year, Clemson had a really great defense. DJ wasn't good enough, and it didn't get them where they wanted to go. So as good as that defense may be, as helpful as it may be to the offense and the quarterback, it's still not enough. You need good enough play at the quarterback position. And I've been saying this all offseason. Right? But it's going to take, if you want to go compete for a national championship, probably elite quarterback play. Not just, you know, a little better than last year. Decent. No, you've got to be really good at the quarterback spot. I don't know if DJ will play to those standards this year. What should the leash be for DJ? How long should you be willing to wait, or when could we potentially see a change to Cade Klubnik? We know Dabo doesn't like to make the move to those freshmen right away. For Trevor Lawrence, it took until Game 5. For Deshaun Watson, it took until Game 4 for his first start. I think it could be something similar this year. You know, what's interesting about the Trevor Lawrence-Kelly Bryant example is that I think Trevor Lawrence was better than Cade Klubnik, bigger profile, bigger prospect. But I also think Kelly Bryant was better than DJ in terms of at least team success. I mean, Clemson made it to the playoff with Kelly Bryant. And the next year, after the first four games, it was clear Trevor Lawrence is better. Kelly Bryant's not doing good enough. we got to make a change. So he brought more success than DJ did, meaning that maybe you have an even shorter leash for DJ. Then you look at the replacement. Well, Trevor Lawrence is probably more ready than maybe Cade Klubnik is. We'll see. He was also a high-end recruit. So maybe you'd want to be a little bit more patient with Klubnik than you were Trevor Lawrence. I don't know. But Deshaun Watson, as mentioned, it was uh, uh, game number four right after they played Florida State, the best team in the conference. Trevor Lawrence, it was game number five when he made his first start. So then you look at Clemson this year. You start with Georgia Tech. Then you get Furman and Louisiana Tech. Mostly cakewalks. But then you get Wake Forest on the road, game number four. And you follow that up with NC State at home, game number five. Probably the most interesting stretch for Clemson's season. Either that or the end of the season where you go from Miami to then South Carolina back-to-back weeks. When it comes to the ACC, at Wake Forest, then NC State, the two best teams in your division, that's the biggest stretch in the ACC schedule. So I think depending on what happens against Wake Forest, September 24th on the road, maybe at that point we see some sort of change. At that point, you probably have an answer on what you get from DJ. Is he going to be better this year? Is he the same type of quarterback as last year? Is he not going to be good enough for us? Because Wake Forest has their quarterback back. They scored more points than anybody a year ago. And even though Clemson's got a really good defense, you may be looking at Hartman on one side and what Wake Forest is doing and comparing that to your offense where you may be struggling. And then you have NC State coming to your building the next week where you can't mess around. That's going to be a huge game for that division. That could be a time where you make a change. And we've seen it's around that time. Game four or five, that's when Deshaun Watson came in, Trevor Lawrence. Maybe that's when we see Cade Klubnik for the first time if DJ isn't playing well enough. And if I had to guess, I, I don't have enough faith in him to think that after what I saw last year, he's suddenly going to turn into some sort of Heisman contender like we thought he was going to be. I think we do see Klubnik this year, and it may be around that time. As we head into October, you go to Wake Forest, you get NC State, even Boston College the next week is probably not a cakewalk on the road up there. That's a big stretch in the schedule. You want to make sure you're at your best on the offensive side. And if DJ's not playing up to snuff, you probably have to make a change already around that time usually when Dabo has done it in the past. We'll wrap up your Wednesday when we come back. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. 
deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. With an equal opportunity for all to sing, dance, and clap their Ramming up your Wednesday on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. Podcasts also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just head over there, click on our show page, and there you can find the the, uh, show on demand. You can also take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or a free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store, download the free app, and through the app you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least seven different states and multiple countries on this Wednesday afternoon. We continue our Power 5 conference previews tomorrow by looking at the Big Ten. Also, we'll start to look ahead to the NFL season as well. I'll give you my biggest concerns for every AFC team tomorrow. Then we'll get to the Falcons, Panthers, and the NFC on Friday. So plenty more to do throughout this week. And, of course, any reactions and takeaways from the media days. ACC getting off and running today in Charlotte and whatever else may come from the SEC in Atlanta as well. We'll have plenty to get to on the show. And we'll see what happens tonight with the ESPYs. If you miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio.